Welcome back to another side quest episode here on the Main Quest Podcast. As always, I am your host, Keith. And usually this is a podcast where I talk about very old games. But today we are here to discuss uh, just an old game. I don't know. It's oldish. I mean, if you abide by the 10 year rule, this game will be retro in a few years. Uh, but this game in particular, something I can't really talk about alone because I don't really think I have the credentials to do it justice. So with me today, you might have already heard uh, from Tales from the Backlog and a top three podcast. One of the oldest hunters <laughs> is Dave. Hey, dude, <laughs> I am truly one of the oldest hunters. I don't know, man, you look real young and spry compared to yeah i was i was gonna say chipper yeah that's a that's another word we can use (laughs) (laughs) we're both incredibly tired yeah dave just woke up and i woke up from a nap (laughs) uh, two different time zones but both on the same sleep schedule apparently yeah yeah this is this is going to be a a real lively energetic podcast i think uh so thanks thanks for coming on man i know i was on your show a little bit ago We, we were planning this for quite some time at this point mm-hmm. yeah it, it's it's kind of i don't know i've kind of like built this up in my head as <laughs> being like a really important episode it is and now it's here and i'm like i don't even know if i'm ready but <laughs> uh we're gonna have to be ready but before we actually start about or start talking about the game i haven't of course haven't formally had had you on before right but i did have you on for the 2021 game of the year episode mm-hmm. Uh, so why don't you let everyone know what you do on your corner of the internet? Yeah, so I have two podcasts, which is ridiculous. Nobody should have two podcasts. Congratulations, Keith, for only having one. My first one is Tales from the Backlog. It's a video games show. And uh, like the main quest, each episode dives into one game in particular. And I guess the thing about my show is that I am just kind of playing through the games in my backlog. It's There's actually less order than... It's literally just like whatever game I want to play, then I play it and I do a podcast about it. And most of them come out of the backlog as uh, just sicko gamers have infinite libraries of video games. There's where most of my games come from. And uh, the other thing about Tales from the Backlog is that I have no spoilers in my show for the first two-thirds or so like we go in depth on game mechanics and stuff like that with no spoilers whatsoever so if you haven't played that game you can listen to tales from the backlog you can enjoy uh, hearing about what this game's all about what makes it special without fear of spoilers and then we do have a spoiler section at the end of the show i keep saying we it's it's me I have a spoiler section at the end of the show. I am the only host on the show. But each episode is me plus one guest, including probably by the time you hear uh, this episode, Keith will have been on my show. Uh, Keith was on my show, but you will be able to go listen to that episode. It's an episode that I really uh, that I really enjoyed doing. And uh, my other show is a top three podcast, and that one is a little bit more simple to describe. Me and three of my high school buddies do top three lists of whatever topic we want to talk about that week. So sometimes we talk video games, but most of the time we're talking about food or, you know, sports or, you know, any all types of various subjects on a top three podcast. So, 
yeah, those are my two shows, Tales from the Backlog and a Top 3 Podcast. Like I said, nobody should have two podcasts. That is insane. And I was going to say, because you were talking about how you have like a no spoiler section, whereas that, I, you know, anybody coming back to my show and anybody who listens regularly knows that I just absolutely don't care. But right. technically... I'm talking about games that are like 30 plus years old. Mm-hmm. So and most of them d- even don't really have a plot to begin with. <laughs> so it's like, I don't really know what there is to spoil. Yeah. I hate to be spoiled on Mickey Mouse, Mouse Capades or whatever. <laughs> there is a plot twist at the end. <laughs> uh, and the plot twist is that there was a plot. Yeah. For those of that don't, don't know. And Dave probably thinks I was just being a huge fucking asshole. But my pop filter <laughs> has is failing me right now. And. The whole time Dave was talking, I was just sitting here messing with it. Yeah, that's why I kind of like talked longer than I was planning to because I was like, all right, keep it going. You know, be professional here while Keith is fixing his technology over there. <laughs> I I honestly don't know what's going on with this thing right now. <laughs> um, technical difficulties. This goes in the outtakes. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to sound terrible. What happened to my light? Now my P's and T's are going to sound fucking disgusting. Hell yeah. Let's do All it. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so it's got to be interesting for you to kind of have a critical look at all of these games as you play them. So I guess my question is, do you play, I don't know if this is the right wording, but do you play games for fun? Yeah. Are there games that you play that you just don't talk about on the show? Yeah, there are. I guess is my question. Yeah, there are for sure. And like, so there are games I play that don't end up being episodes on the show just because maybe I already have enough episodes for this like type or for this month or something like that. Or a lot of like, like I said, it's just me plus a guest on every episode. So sometimes it's like, hey, I just finished the Guardians of the Galaxy game. Does anyone want to do a podcast? And if I don't get someone saying like, Hey, I want to, then I'm like, okay, I'm not doing an episode on that one then. So I didn't do an episode Mm -hmm. on the guardians of the galaxy game, even though I really liked it, it would have been, you know, I think there's enough there to do a whole episode about that's the other thing. There's some other games that I really like that I play that are just like, if I did an episode, it'd be like 25 minutes long or something like that, you know, and there's just not a ton to talk about. There are a lot of, um, a lot of indie games. So sometimes like what I'm planning right now is I'm going to do a kind of kind of wrap up where I just give 10 minutes to each of those games because I think they're good. But if I got a guest on to talk about it, there just wouldn't be a ton to talk about. So I guess like I a lot of the games I play, especially if they're longer, you know, like I'm playing Elden Ring as we're recording this, I'm 50 hours into Elden Ring. I'm going to do an episode on Elden Ring, number one, because I want to talk about it, but number two, because if I'm going to play it for 130 hours or whatever, then I probably should do an episode about it, you know? Mm-hmm. So the the question, like, is it, like, do I play it for fun? I'm, right now, I'm playing Elden Ring for fun. I'm not really taking notes right now. I'm not really thinking super critically, except, like, marveling at how good it is in a lot of ways, and that's how... 
that's kind of how I go through a lot of the games, um, especially if they're longer. I will just play it for fun and kind of like I think about it critically a little bit because that's where my mind is now. But yeah. then after I'm done playing, I'll go back and I'll I'll look up the story again so that I can see exactly what's going on. And I'll go look at, at like different, you know, I'll, I'll read some reviews and like get a refresher on the mechanics so I don't forget anything in my show. I'm not... I'm usually not like diligently taking notes and being super critical while I'm playing. Even if you know you're going to be playing it for the show? Yeah. So, of course, I'm I'm thinking a little bit critically a lot of times, but I'm not like I'm I'm not like playing it and like pausing the game to take notes a lot of times. I do all that after I'm done playing and I'll just like every couple play sessions I will go into the notes later that day and I'll write down like what I thought or what happened uh, during that to like help me remember. But I'm not, I don't know. I'm not like playing it with a super critical eye right there in that moment. That kind of thought mm. comes after I'm done playing. I don't know how you do that. Cause as soon as I would finish the game and sit down to take notes, I, everything would be out yeah. out of my head. I it would be like, wait, what? So I, how do I, play this game again well it helps that like, <laughs> like it helps that like a lot of the games that i'm covering on my show are a lot more recent and there's i have yet to play a game that doesn't have an extensive wikipedia page for example or like lots of people talking about it there are some games that are a little bit more obscure but even those like there's there's a lot of information i remember like on a lot of your episodes you're kind of lamenting how there's like no information about this game online and that doesn't happen mm -hmm. with games that I have on my show. So I have that benefit, I guess. Yeah, you do tend to cover games that are, especially by my podcast standards, a little bit longer uh, yeah. than, you know, five or six hours. You have some indie games in there that are that are pretty short. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, you are covering longer games. Like, I think the longest game I might have covered on this show, it's got to be between Final Fantasy 3 and like disco no that's a lie uh horizon i covered horizon, horizon zero dawn yeah but like in that same month you talked about horizon you probably have a couple other games that are like an hour and a half long right <laughs> yeah right yeah <laughs> yeah so it's a little bit a little bit different mm -hmm. but you know i and i of course discovered tales from the backlog from a top three podcast i was originally listening to that and uh listened to you guys uh, basically shoot the shit about whatever you guys are talking about that week. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember where I heard about Tales from the Backlog. It wasn't from you. It might have been Eric. I was I was going to say, like, it was like you and Eric and uh, Rick from Pixel Project Radio that were like the first other podcasters I ever had any contact with uh, after starting mm -hmm. a top three. So it was one of them for sure. Fuck, I, I I don't remember. <laughs> like our conversations move so fucking quick, me and Eric. But yeah, he was like, "Yeah, you gotta, you know, check out Dave's new podcast and blah blah blah." And I'm like, "Who the fuck is Dave?" <laughs> That's the it correct response. Much, I was like, "Oh, <laughs> the dude from a top three. Like, all right, cool. Yeah, I had no idea. And then um, we basically kind of started talking from there. I think I shot you a couple messages on the uh, top three account yeah. uh, a few times. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, both podcasts are really awesome and thank you dude i really am kind of jealous of the way that you are able to set up that kind of you call it the spoiler wall yeah 
where there's no spoilers before, but afterwards anything goes. Mm -hmm. uh, that kind of structure is really unique. Yeah, you don't and that's, really see that on shows. Like that's why I wanted to do it because I don't see other shows talking about it. And so like if there's a game that I really want to like hear people talk about, but I haven't played it yet, I just like can't listen mm -hmm. to podcasts about it. And I remember this being mm -hmm. a thing with um with Disco Elysium before I before they released the the update that makes like any PC run Disco Elysium, I was like, I really want to like listen to people talk about because everyone was saying it's great. I want to know why it's great and I don't want to read. So I want to listen to podcasts, but all of them have spoilers, so I can't. And then so I when I started my show, you know, be the change you want to see in the world, right? And all that. So <laughs> yeah. that's why that's why I did it that way. So one last question, then we'll finally move on. I ask this of every guest who comes on for the first time. What is your favorite game of all time? Shit. I listen to your your podcast a lot. How do I how did I not know this question was coming? Um <laughs> uh, <laughs> dude, like honestly, the game we're talking about today might be my favorite game of all time. Like it's Oh shit. Yeah, it's <laughs> okay. It's either Bloodborne or like I mean, like I said, I'm 50 hours into Elden Ring. Elden Ring is making a strong case to be my favorite game ever. Final Fantasy VI might be a contender, but I don't think I like it more than Bloodborne. So I'm just going to like stop rambling and just say it's probably Bloodborne at this point in time. Interesting. Okay. Well, fuck. <laughs> hey, I'm glad you're here today. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's for damn sure. That's why like... I don't know. I don't know who posed Bloodborne as like the episode that I come in that I come on the show for, whether it was me or you that suggested it. But I was like, yes, let me talk about that, please. Well, that kind of, you know, dives into my personal history for the game. So why don't we just get started? Yeah, let's do right? it. Today we played Bloodborne. So I will go first because my personal history is pretty brief. I assume you'd probably have something a little longer than me. Surprisingly, one of my exes, she had Dark Souls on her PC. And I started playing that sometime before Christmas of 2014. And that very same Christmas, she got me a PS4. And knowing that Bloodborne was right around the corner, I finished up Dark Souls, which is a game I still love to this day. I actually just recently replayed it after playing Bloodborne. Mm -hmm. uh, little janky, doesn't quite hold up, but I, I still love it. And then Bloodborne came out, I got that, and I dropped it pretty quickly. Like, I bounced off of it. Mm -hmm. And I think at, at the point that I bounced off, it was like, I might have been at 
the Bloodstarved Beast, or I might have just beaten him. Um, and I'm not really sure, but having replayed it for the show, I kind of have a hunch maybe, but also The Witcher 3 was like right around the corner after Bloodborne. Oh, right. Yeah. And I played the shit out of shit out of that. Mm-hmm. So that might have had a hand in that, in that also. And then last year, Bloodborne had just been on the back of my mind all year last year. And I was like, I really want to replay this. And I never really quite got the time. And it wasn't until I started talking with you <laughs> and we kind of agreed that um, either I come on your show and we talk about it or you come on mine. And since I had really wanted to play it, it gave me an excuse to play it. And I was like, I think it was me that I was like, why don't you come on my show? And we'll do it on mine. Mm-hmm. And um, that's it. And I played the fuck out of this. I played the fuck out of Bloodborne. I platinumed it. I've seen nice. everything that I need to see in the game. I'm ready to go. I am ready to talk about this game. So what is your personal history with the game? Yeah, so I played Dark Souls back in like 2013 or something like that. I was like a fan of From Software from then because I immediately loved uh, Dark Souls. But then I moved to Korea pretty soon after that. And like my first several years when I was living in Korea, I didn't play any video games at all. I I brought my... 360 with me but I didn't touch it like literally never turned it on and then I I ended up selling it so then like I think it was like 2019 I bought a PS4 Uh, and this was I had I got a switch before that and that got me like back into gaming like full full tilt um so when I got a PS4 I was looking at all those lists of like you know hey, you just got a PS4. Here are the exclusive games you should play. And Bloodborne was like number one on all those lists. So I was like, oh shit, okay, Bloodborne. Oh, the Dark Souls people made this? Like I literally had not heard of Bloodborne until I started reading those lists. So I bought Bloodborne and Dark Souls 3 and I played Dark Souls 3 uh, and then Bloodborne. I think that helped me like get into the, the speed of it a little bit. And yeah, just dude, like as soon as I turned it on, I was hooked. It was one of those games where it was like, I just could not stop playing, Mm. which is what a lot of the From Software games do for me. So I have since, I think I've played it like two and a half times. I have a character that's somewhere in the middle of the game and I've beaten it uh, twice. I don't have the platinum because I don't do chalice dungeons uh, as much as I tell myself I, I want to do it this time. I still haven't. That playing through Dark Souls 3, but especially Bloodborne uh, during that time, just like totally like renewed my love for From Software. And then Bloodborne is a game that since I beat it the first time, I think about a lot. And I'm always just like, whenever I'm playing a game that I'm like not 100% into, I'm like, you know what I should do when I'm done with this? I should play Bloodborne again. (laughs) So it's one of those games where it's like, if, if a game is not like totally satisfying, I'm like, Dave, you could be playing Bloodborne right now. Think about that. Are you sure you're making the right choice right now? So, yeah, that's uh, that's that's it. And as soon as I beat Bloodborne, I went on like a From Software rampage. Like I played Dark Souls three, Bloodborne, Dark Souls two, and Sekiro all in like the same year, basically, um, to get myself caught up. And uh, I like Dark Souls three, but I think it was Bloodborne that really like really captured my imagination. I was going to ask you this question a little later, but I may as well ask you now. 
what is it about the from software formula that grabs you exactly okay so a lot of people will tell you that it's the like struggle against a boss do a little bit better each time learn their attacks you know and have that triumphant moment when you finally beat them right that's what a lot of people say for from software uh, for me from software makes worlds and levels that are so fun to explore and that is mm-hmm. that is my favorite thing about their games all of their games have just incredible exploration i'm not a uh, item description reader or like a lore digger that's that's also not something that i really do even though i tell myself i'm going to it's just not who i am i need to stop trying at this point um <laughs> but like dude it's just going through levels in Bloodborne or, or Dark Souls or now in Elden Ring, like exploring is so good and satisfying that like every boss I come up against, some of them are really fun challenges for sure. And some of them are really fun to fight. Some of them are really hard, but it, it I do get that intended like slow learning and progression. But it's really just like I want to beat this boss because I want to see the next level. I want to see what it looks like. I want to see what the enemies are like. I want to see what treasure I can find. That's what really does it uh, for me. And we're going to probably elaborate on a lot of this stuff as we go down. I Even in my notes, I have a second, se- like a subsection in the gameplay, which I never do uh, about the level design because the level design in Bloodborne is nothing short of a masterclass. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, as far as level design goes, it's actually very, very good. Mm-hmm. But before we get into that, uh, of course, you dive into a little bit of the development history. I don't have too much here, um, but as the podcast goes, uh, Bloodborne is an action RPG developed by From Software and published by Sony Computer Entertainment. Now, I did some brief research on to, as to why this was a PlayStation Four exclusive. Uh, I did that like earlier today. Yeah, same here. And I really could not find anything other than people basically having like this conjecture around that maybe Namco just did not want to fund the game at all. And Sony was all in on funding it. Oh, yeah. So like what I saw was basically like Sony had worked with From Software in the past, right? With uh, with Demon Souls. So right. what I had read is they just kind of approached Miyazaki or from soft after uh, dark souls was such a big success and was like, Hey, you know, why don't we do another game together? And that was, and I like, I think at that point they were thinking like, we need a next gen console for like what Miyazaki wanted to be in the game. So then mm-hmm. they were just like, yeah, sure. PS is coming out. So why don't we partner up with Sony here and uh, make this game the way that, I want it to be made, which is, which I guess they thought would be possible on PS4 and like maybe, and like not only PS4, but it was like, Hey, Sony's in the office right now. Okay, cool. Let's do that. That's kind of what I came across. That makes a little more sense than what I was reading up on it. And I don't quote me on this, but I'm sure Namco probably put money behind Dark Souls 2, which was being developed around the same time. Mm -hmm. So maybe they didn't want to put more money into another project. Also, they were kind of, I don't want to say taking a risk developing Dark Souls 2 or, or Bloodborne or any of that, because 
uh, as we get into Demon Souls and Dark Souls, like they were moderate successes, but they aren't they weren't talked about how they are nowadays. Yeah. So I could see Namco being like, uh, we're only going to do one. <laughs> uh, so you're on your own with this other you're on your own with this other thing, Miyazaki. Could be. Yeah, could be. But who who knows? I, I, I feel like yours is probably like, I don't know, the more uh, doesn't involve capitalism in some way. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I mean, nothing. Sony's not walking into your office out of like the goodness of their heart and the pursuit of great, you know, art. That's not why Sony's offering to work with you. So and clearly Sony put money into this thing. I mean, there was tons of advertising and, and stuff like that for it back in the day. You know, I remember seeing like the big posters and stuff in stores of like the hunter, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the the box art essentially right. of the hunter standing there and um, you know, it says Bloodborne on it or whatever. Uh, so there was a good marketing push for this, but um, let's um, go back before 2015. Uh, we can't obviously talk about this game without talking about uh, Hidetaka Miyazaki and, of course, Dark Souls. And because I don't consider myself to be a hack reviewer, <laughs> this will probably be the only time you'll hear me compare a game to Dark Souls because <laughs> in the case of Bloodborne, yeah, you, you kind of have to. Mm-hmm. So back to Miyazaki, uh, he's the whole brainchild uh, for the series. He joined from software around 2004 and was help, helping along the, the development of uh, from software's Armored Core series. In 2007 or 2008, he essentially learned of this floundering project that would end up being Demon Souls, and he took full control of that. Uh, from software was pretty much prepared to scrap that game entirely until Miyazaki took over. And, you know, Miyazaki essentially said that, like, through that game's development, he really felt no pressure at all. He just was able to essentially do whatever he wanted, wanted to. Yeah. And if it ended up failing, then he was totally fine with it. Yeah. If it, I mean, if it fails, who cares? It was going to fail anyway. So like he's, he was, right. he's not taking any risk by doing what he wants in that game. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, um, unfortunately it didn't do great, but it did kind of garner like this underground, like cult fan base at the time. Mm-hmm. It actually gave FromSoft a little bit more courage to let Miyazaki make another game, which would of course, uh, end up being something similar to Demon Souls, but was called Dark Souls. And you kind of talked about um, in your personal history coming to Dark Souls in 2013. Yeah. Did you have any other experience with the soul? Like, did you play, go back and play Demon Souls? So did you play? Elden Ring is the only FromSoft game that I played right when it released. Uh, all the other ones I came, I came to after, even Sekiro I didn't play when it released. I waited at least six months. Like, it was, I remember I... I I didn't play Sekiro before the Game Awards. I remember that. Demon Souls, I never had a PS3, so I never played that until the uh, the PS5 uh, version came out. That was... Okay. Yeah, that was, I guess, another one I played. As soon as I got my PS5, that was the first game I got. And, like, I remember back in the day, I remember, like, reading gaming magazines, I think, that were talking about Demon Souls but I'd never played it. And I was, I, they were just talking about how hard it was and stuff. And I was like, Oh, that, 
that sucks. That doesn't sound cool. Like I'm playing Oblivion. That's I like Oblivion because it's not very hard. So or like Skyrim yeah, or yeah. something like that. Uh, so I remember reading about it, and I don't know what got me to play Dark Souls. It literally might have been the dude at GameStop telling me like, "Hey, you should try this game." And I, a lot of time that I used to play, I like a shocking number of my favorite games are the result of a dude at GameStop being like, Hey man, this game's good. Like that's how I got Morrowind for the first time. A dude at GameStop was like, Hey, you should play this. You like RPGs? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, you should play this. And I was like, okay, here's your $60 or however much it was. Um, <laughs> I think that happened for Dark Souls also. Like none of my friends played it. I, I don't know why I would have picked it up. So, but yeah, like anyway, I didn't, like I said, when Bloodborne was being released and promoted, I was, like either preparing to move to Korea or actually living overseas and not being exposed to any like U.S. marketing. So I, like I said, I didn't even know it existed until I got a PS4 in like 2019 or something. The The first time I heard about Demon Souls was actually like in 2010. And at the time I wasn't even really playing video games, but I came across somebody doing like a let's play of the game and... All I heard about was it being just like this extremely difficult game and I was looking at it and uh, the original Demon Souls, I mean, I'm glad they remade it because that game kind of just looks like garbage uh, compared to <laughs> obviously compared to what we've got now. But I was like, this kind of looks like a, a third person Morrowind. Yeah, it was like at the time, my only real experience with something that looked like that is when you'd accidentally switch Skyrim into third person mode and you'd be like, fuck, fuck, turn it back to first person. This is terrible. <laughs> that was like, so when I, I think it was, it was probably Dark Souls when I first saw it, I was like, oh, that's how you're supposed to play this game. Okay. That, okay. Looks cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and as far as like context goes, Demon Souls and Dark Souls, there's such a pull in the other direction when it came to contemporary uh, game design in the aughts like you know if you think about the early 2000s maybe even before that uh, video games really kind of strayed from like how they used to be and if you're a regular listener or listen to any other episode of, of my podcast uh, games were incredibly hard back in the day I concur. And, <laughs> and yeah, of, of course, Mr. Mega Man X is too hard. It is. <laughs> <laughs> and like all the built up frustration of playing through to the end of like a very difficult and albeit like horribly crafted uh, video game, like you said earlier, can kind of give you kind of like a high, you know, or having the satisfaction of knowing that you conquered it, right? And if games in the 90s did away with, like, high scores of the 80s, where, like, every game had, like, a high score on it for absolutely no reason at all, uh, the 2000s did away with, like, uh, player agency for, like, more guided experiences. Like, long gone were, like, those hand... Those, like, or handcrafted, well-crafted tutorials of stuff, like, in Super Mario Brothers or Castlevania... And with the 2000s, now you literally just have, you know, somebody screaming at you on screen of exactly what buttons you need to push and when to press them. There's no really any kind of fail state. 
uh, you basically just start the tutorial over until you get through it. <laughs> yeah. And that that's kind of like how it was for like a very long time. Like video games became less of a game and more like interactive films, more or less. Like the sense of accomplishment was kind of gone. And instead, all you had to do was just go cutscene to cutscene and pressing a few buttons in between. And I guess it sounds like I'm generalizing a little bit. <laughs> sure. Like maybe, but... I don't think it's a stretch. No, I was I was just looking at like because Demon Souls came out in two thousand nine or something like that. So I was just looking at like some of the other contemporary games that came out around that time. So it's like Uncharted Two was a huge hit, and like Halo mm -hmm. ODST is another one on. The, I never played that, so I can't really talk. But it's a Halo game, of course. It was a big hit. Assassin's Creed Two, uh, Batman, Arkham Asylum, stuff like that. Yeah. So like those are like the huge games in that like landscape. Borderlands is another one. And like no, I've played a lot of those games. None of those games are really challenging. And if they are challenging, it's because you're at like the end of like Arkham Asylum or something like that. And you're right. Like we, there was a kind of shift to like, you know, we don't want our game to be too hard because we want people to play it forever. And like obviously demon souls and dark souls like swing completely in the opposite direction and i'm like i'm glad you brought this up because like all the from software games have this reputation of being like incredibly incredibly difficult where we already talked about mega man x like i i wonder like every game that's difficult gets compared to dark souls or uh, bloodborne or something like that where like I'm just thinking in my head like man every game that came out before 1998 was harder than Dark Souls for me personally so <laughs> like I, I just wonder like do people forget how hard some of the like NES games were like and I know a lot of these people are old enough to remember like hey man like fucking Battletoads right like people remember that game but like it's every game that's hard now it's like oh it's like Dark Souls so you would say Mega Man X is the Bloodborne of the Mega Man <laughs> games? Uh, I haven't played. Or is Bloodborne is Bloodborne the Mega Man X? <laughs> Bloodborne it's the other way around. Bloodborne is the Mega Man X of the Mega Man Souls series. <laughs> yes, I would say that. You can quote me on that. I guess we we had like ten years of hand holding when it when it came to video games, yeah. and then suddenly now we're going back two game mechanics where enemies just show up and bam you're fucking dead why am i dead why are you dead because you weren't paying attention that's why you're dead Ex exactly and that yeah. never yeah. happens in uncharted 2 or assassin's creed 2 yeah never. exactly yeah miyazaki he brought back the elements of having to essentially memorize your surroundings you know and having to learn how to approach enemies with the tool set that you're given.
yeah, I mean, I think you even talked about that whole thing uh, with difficulty on your Dark Souls episode. Yeah, I've, um, I've talked about it many times. I talked about it on uh, Eric's podcast. I've talked about it on a couple episodes of my show. It's a it's a thing that's really starting to bother me when literally every game that comes out that's the slightest bit challenging. People are like, hey, man, it's like Dark Souls. Yes, it, it's like even right down to I mean, I just um, had my brother on not too long ago. And he compared, he literally said the words. He was like, oh man, Elden Ring is like if you took Dark Souls and Breath of the Wild. And I rolled my eyes as far back in the back <laughs> of my head as possible. Because I'm like, there it is. Somebody said it. Here it is. Um, yeah, I just, um, I guess I'm just going to pat myself on the back. Because not once in like the hundred episodes that I have, did I ever describe a retro game as a Souls-like or vice versa. Yeah, of course. Because, <laughs> um, I mean... Because it's just, it's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, the the Souls-like stuff is literally just bringing some retro sensibilities to modern, you know, 3D action games. But if you were to, I guess, inherently say, oh, this game is a Souls-like, and now I think a lot of games do this, but the only one that comes to mind right off the top of my head is Hollow Knight. And I will also say not entirely sure and you might know this more than i do Mm -hmm. if this mechanic is unique to the soul series i don't know if they were the first to do something like this but the only real unique mechanic that the souls games bring to the table is the idea of you losing your progress or like your xp and having the option to go back where you died and then having that risk reward of regaining all of the progress back yeah, I and I can't I can't think of anything else. The Demon Souls was the first time I heard anyone talking about this kind of a, a mechanic. Yeah, same. I, I I could be wrong. If if there is something else that did this, feel free to DM me or email me or whatever. Um I couldn't find anything while researching. Um so if you were to ever be like, Well, this is a souls like, the first thing I'm going to guess about that game is that it just has a feature where you lose xp and then you go get it otherwise if that's not in the game i don't know what the hell you're talking about (laughs) other than the obvious you know it's just hard which is again bullshit there are a couple games that i think are soul pretty souls like that don't have that lose your souls mechanic um, but they have like literally everything else that the Souls games are famous for, and I'm totally blanking on. I covered it on my show, and I still can't remember what game it is. Um, but anyway, yeah, that's a a key feature that a lot of a lot of games that are taking inspiration from uh, the Souls series and Bloodborne uh, will take. That's like number one is that losing your souls thing. Yeah, speaking as far as Bloodborne goes, getting back to that and not the series as a whole. Bloodborne is everything that we just basically talked about as far as the rest of the series goes. It's slightly different. All the influences Miyazaki had for these games are prevalent in other games that came before, even games that I've covered on the show like um, Resident Evil 4, Simon's Quest, uh, definitely God of War and Devil May Cry. Mm -hmm. And an episode that you recently did, not so recent, I guess... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> whenever this this comes out as of this recording it, it came out like a week ago or so um essentially uh the games were a spiritual successor to FromSoft's own uh kingsfield franchise right yep 
even though like Miyazaki is the kind of, you know, the, the person behind all the Souls stuff, uh, he didn't work at From Software when the Kingsfield series was being developed. He came on after that, but he was a big fan of the games just as like a person who loves video games. He loved Kingsfield uh, from all accounts. So when he kind of carried on with the Souls series and of course all the other people that worked at From Software that worked on the Kingsfield games, uh, they like very obviously carried tons of stuff uh, from those older games. Essentially, obviously Dark Souls did pretty well. They greenlighted a sequel. Uh, Miyazaki decided that he did not want to work on that. Instead, if he just uh, decided that he was going to be a consultant. And then from then on, he decided he wanted to do like the true follow up, which would be Bloodborne, which they started development in 2012. Along with Masaki Yamagishi, Tiryoki Toriyama, uh, these guys acted as the producers for Bloodborne. Kazuhiro Hamatani did an awesome job designing the game, as we will be talking about later. And then there was an army of musicians who worked on the music. We've got Ryan Amon, uh, Sukasa Satoi, Yuka Kitamura, Nobrio Yushi Suzuki, Chris Velasco, and Michael Wandmaker. Wandmaker? Wandmaker. Why is that the one I'm stumbling over? <laughs> you got all the Japanese <laughs> names. <laughs> Michael Wandmaker. Bloodborne is, as I said before, a PlayStation 4 exclusive. was released worldwide in March 2015. There are still cries of people wanting a PC port. I say give it to them. Why the fuck not? You should be able to play a video game. Yeah. And for context, though, with you here today... I'm not sure I'm going to need these review scores, but it's formal at this point. It's got a 92% on Metacritic, 9 out of 10 on GameSpot. The typical 9 out of 10s at IGN, they've got a surplus of 9s over there. Mm -hmm. And a 4.5 out of 5 on Giant Bomb. And as of this uh, recording, March 13th, Bloodborne will be officially 7 years old in 2 days. Ooh. So Yeah, so it is it's almost considered retro if you're doing that 10 years rule, which is yeah. weird. I give it 15. <laughs> 10's too soon. A, a PS4 soon. game can't be retro. That's... No. Yeah. No, because then you're calling the PS4 retro. Right. That's just not true. Mm -hmm. And you're probably wondering why I'm recording this in March and not in January or something and having that, um, you know, algorithmic synergy with the release of Elden Ring uh, it's because I don't give a fuck. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, the, the energy that it would require to match yourself up with whatever the algorithm likes at any particular day and time. It's, uh, it's too much. I, I'm marching to the beat of my own drum and hoping that they announce a Bloodborne remake. And then there's, there's that algorithm. There you go. Yeah. Uh, one other thing about like Bloodborne development that I found, and again, like I missed this during the time because I was not paying attention to games at all. But like during the development, there was a there's either a leak or some kind of release that like internally they were calling it Project Beast, um, which obviously this is a game that deals with beasthood as a theme. But it got everyone thinking that this game is going to be about like werewolves, basically. They, you know, we have the setting like the the, you know, very European inspired setting. And we have the um, influences from Dracula and stuff like that, that they talk about, or that uh, like 
Miyazaki said he was influenced by. So people thought like, this is a game about werewolves or like, maybe you're going to turn into a werewolf. And it is a game about werewolves for a little while. So I think that twist got people like really got people uh, once once everyone got a chance to play the game because for so long people are like this is the from software werewolf game i'm just thinking about how different this game would have played if that was the case and i'm thinking about it i'm like man i might be giving away too many thoughts right right here but if you had played as a werewolf i probably would have enjoyed the gameplay a lot more So, like I said, this game is going to be seven years old in just a few days. That doesn't mean everyone has played it. I am not Dave or Tales of the Backlog. If you haven't played it and you don't want anything spoiled, this episode's not for you. Um, As I tend to do on this show, we will literally just talk about everything. And at any given time, we just might dig something up that happens later in the game that corresponds with what we are talking about at the time. So this is it. This is your final warning. If you want to go play Bloodborne, go ahead, come back, uh, watch a playthrough, whatever you want to do. I get it. It's also one of those situations where I'm like, I don't know why you would click on a podcast about Bloodborne and expect there to not be spoilers. But here we are. Dave, um, so I have no idea what's happening in this (laughs) game. I don't know what the story is. And this is something that's pretty common for... The Souls series, it's a typical thing for them to be cryptic as Mm -hmm. hell. And this is something deliberately done by Miyazaki because of uh, essentially just him not being able to read English as a child. I don't know if that's like a big brain genius move of him or if it's just lazy. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like a convenient excuse to not write plot. But Miyazaki himself has said that he doesn't like writing stories his expertise is clearly in just the game does the game design and um creation of the world um so that aside do you have any idea what the hell is happening in this game i have a theory okay but i'll let you lay it out first if you have anything because i'm probably horribly wrong okay so just to clarify before i say what i think i know this is not something that i picked up on by myself this is from years of listening to podcasts and watching, you know, Vadi Vidya on YouTube tell me what the story is. So like I have an understanding of what is going on in the story, but this is not something I came to on my own. Like I said earlier, I don't read item descriptions and in cutscenes and stuff. I'm very much just like, hmm, yes, this is cool what's happening on the screen, but I'm I'm not thinking deeply about what's going on or connecting pieces or anything like that. Uh, so anyway, um, the 
basic thing that I understand is that some scholars and students at this university in the city of Yarnum uh, discovered uh, these underground tunnels, an underground civilization, basically, uh, where like ancient inhabitants of the city, like what the city was built on top of, had discovered these Lovecraftian gods of some kind. And they were using the blood of those gods as kind of like a miracle cure. So when you see them talk about blood ministration in the game, uh, people come to Yarnum for uh, this kind of blood therapy, right? They talk about that pretty early in the game. They say, go to the healing church if you're in, if you're in search of blood ministration. So they're using this like eldritch blood as a cure, but using that blood uh, also brought about this kind of beast plague, uh, which is, you know, when the game starts, it's the night of the hunt. People have been transformed into these beasts and it's because they're using this blood. And I think there's a correlation between like how much blood you take and basically how big and serious of a beast you become. So like the really important people became these, became the bosses, basically these huge, you know, monsters, the cleric beast and Vicar Amelia and stuff like that. And the regular Yarnum people have a little bit of beasthood going on, just a little bit, but they're not like these huge monstrosities. So like at the same time, they discovered these eldritch gods they took the blood and that blood caused this beast thing to happen. So you mentioned the hunt. So I was, I guess I shouldn't say I was under the understanding because I actually have no fucking idea. Okay. <laughs> but from what I gather was that, so are the hunters basically just this like group of people that go out on a certain night and go kill people who are using blood like what's i don't understand the stuff that you said i'm just kind of like oh yeah i could, I could see yeah all right. yeah but also so that's i guess that's my first question and i don't want to ask too many questions about the story because we have a lot to talk about right yeah as as far as i know and this is where my understanding starts to like get real shaky too but i'm i'm also under the impression that the hunters are like a faction and their job is like when the beast thing starts, their job is to go basically keep the city safe, I guess. Like during the night of the hunt, it's their job to get out there, kill the beasts, make sure they don't wreck everything. So there are multiple hunts that happen. Yeah, this is a repeating thing that happens again and again because there is a, uh, there is a, then we get into like, you know, the curse um, that was brought about the hunters. You kind of learn why that happened in the DLC, but there is a curse. There is a nightmare element. There is like a living inside a dream element to this too. Uh, there's a lot going on as far as like the hunters and stuff. And I don't know a ton about that, even though I consume a lot of content about this game, that the stuff that I've said on the show already is the stuff that's stuck and everything else has sure. fallen off. So uh, the the gameplay of this game is why it's my favorite game. And the story of it is cool, but I have a really hard time internalizing it. So this was my very wrong interpretation of the okay. story. Because I, I still don't understand why we are a hunter. 
uh, but we are. So essentially, I just I thought you played as a guy who went in for dental surgery, and when he gets put under, he is not really completely asleep. He's got the twilight sleep going on, mm-hmm. you know, where like you know real life and dreams mix, uh, but also the surgery goes completely wrong, and all of a sudden in this like kind of dream world, there's just blood everywhere. Mm-hmm. But his subconscious manifests that as like all these terrible demons and monsters. And uh, he has to get through all of it because he has got to pay his insurance. Because <laughs> you got to wake um, up and go to and work in the, the morning. <laughs> right. And then at the end of the game, he wakes up and finds that he's paralyzed in the wheelchair and getting carted around the end. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there is a there is a definite dream element to it. Like when your dude goes in, because your dude is going in for this blood ministration treatment. Uh, That's for sure happening. And then you do wake up in this dream world, or at least like parts of this are a dream world. I actually think the parts in Yarnum, like the first level central Yarnum, I think that's real, but you are being transported to dream worlds throughout the game, like the hunter's dream and a couple of levels that are sp- that are like explicitly part of this ongoing nightmare that the hunters have been cursed with. There's definitely a dividing line uh, once you beat Rom. It's kind yeah. of the young Link pulling the Master Sword out of the pedestal, and there's a whole other side of the game, you know? You know, there's all these... It definitely becomes very dreamlike. Even a lot of the enemies are kind of sleep. They're taking a nap. Uh, while like the rest of the world is filled with like these giant, they they kind of look like alien stick bugs, you know, kind of mm-hmm. crawling all over the cathedrals and stuff like that. Uh, it's it's a very strange. And you said that a lot of the DLC kind of explains some of this stuff, and I laughed because I'm like it no, did. Like um, ex- explain <laughs> kind of like there's like one, there's like two NPCs that let you know like any information about what's going on in especially the later in the uh uh what's that called the when you fight maria maria's cutscene kind of tells you a little bit like maria's guarding a secret and she tells you to stay away right and then when you go into the fishing yeah. hamlet there's a dude there who basically says like this is what the hunters have done they deserve they deserve everything that happened to them because uh, the hunters committed some atrocity in that uh, fishing hamlet, and that's the origin of the curse of like this this hunt and this nightmare, the stuff uh, like that. German is trapped in the hunter's dream because of what happened in that fishing hamlet. So, like mm. all that stuff, those NPCs give you like some very cryptic dialogue, and this is not in this is not like an understanding that I arrived at by myself, but. That is my understanding. Uh, there's so much more, though, that I have really no idea. And there's like this whole uh, subplot in the game about them wanting to create a new like Eldritch God. There's a whole like subset of the people that are trying to create one, a great one, as they call them in the game. And there's just a lot going on. And so like in Bloodborne, I think there's a lot more story to like attached to than dark souls but at the same time there's more and it's a lot easier to get confused i think (laughs) i'm still confused 
you've brought up more than I would have even thought was even actually going on in this game. Thinking of some of the events that unfold, it kind of what you're saying makes sense. Real quick, you know, you talked about NPCs. The thing I'll give Bloodborne is that it does have a lot more NPCs than, you know, like Dark Souls has. But interacting with them doesn't really give you a lot as far as context and what's going on. A lot of them are just they're hitting behind windows most of the time, Mm -hmm. which is weird. Uh, You can bring them to the cathedral. The uh, Erden Chapel is where you can bring the NPCs. Right. Yeah, you can bring most of them there. Yeah. You know, earlier I talked about how the Soulsborne games kind of crib from earlier video games uh, from the 70s and 80s. And as far as the story goes, I mean, that's very much like a retro video game where there's you mentioned Mickey Mouse Capade. Uh, there's really not a lot going on in that game as far as story goes. And so obviously, as far as like a story goes, this is going to be very subjective. You obviously you don't play video games for a story. You play it for gameplay. It depends on the game, but these games, specifically the From Software games, I am all about uh, the gameplay over this, st- I'll figure out the story later when I watch YouTube videos or listen to podcasts. But when I'm playing, it is all mm-hmm. gameplay. See, for me, it's and I give the retro video games a pass because they were literally made on like like a two megabyte right. chip, and <laughs> they can't process anything and whatever. So when I talk about the story for those games, I'm just like, yeah, whatever. Like, who yeah. gives a shit? But for me, when it comes to like modern games, like personally, there's like an overlapping point for me with the story and the gameplay. Like, in my opinion, two of the most important things a game could have are those two things. Like you can tell a deep, meaningful story and have average gameplay. And I'll be like, cool. Like um, uh, you mentioned Uncharted or like The yeah. Last of Us, you know. The Last of Us doesn't have great gameplay. It's really boring. Yeah. But the story is really fucking good. So therefore, I feel like, ah, oh, this is acceptable. This is mm-hmm. fine. Or you could have a a game with virtually no story and amazing gameplay like um, <laughs> Bayonetta. Halo? <laughs> Bayonetta. Yeah, there you go. Like, uh, And for me, like Bloodborne, it has like hints of a story in there. But most of the time, I'm like, I don't know why I'm doing anything that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And then also, I kind of already alluded to it that I just did not feel the gameplay was that engaging for me. So we can just kind of slide into that. I feel like that's a wonderful (laughs) segue. Yeah. Before we do, just real quick, like... Yeah, go ahead. The first time I played Bloodborne, I didn't pick up on any story at all. So like like you said, I didn't have any context on like okay, I'm fighting this boss. Why am I fighting this boss? I didn't have a ton of context for that kind of stuff. And I do think that from software games are excellent at building atmosphere and like vibes if you want to call it that. So like they're great games to play through, enjoy the gameplay or maybe not <laughs> and um get just like kind of vibe with everything that's going on. Like, you know, okay, I'm in this fucked up city. There's a lot of like horrible stuff that's happening. I dig this. 
I dig the way things look, the way the enemies look and stuff like that. I go, oh, suddenly there's, you know, Lovecraftian stuff happening. That's cool. Uh, but I still don't know what's going on, but I'm still vibing. And I think it's perfectly good to play these games and enjoy them in that way too. Coming back after learning the story and learning who some of these people are like, okay, I'm going back. I know who Lawrence is now. So when I fight Lawrence in the DLC, that context does add a little bit, but you're right. Like they don't, they don't seem to care whether you get it or not. Like from software doesn't care if you understand the story or not. It's a ballsy move. Yeah. It's a ballsy move. It works for them. It, it does. And like, but like they very clearly are like, hey, you can go through this whole game and not have a single goddamn idea what's happening. And we're fine with that. I, I think that they are now, after the success of Dark Souls and Bloodborne, now they are fully making games that are like designed to be, the stories are designed to be put together by the community. And they kind of feel like it's not their job to tell the player a story which if you don't like that, that's cool. I totally get that. But like this, it's clearly that's what they're doing. Uh, even into Elden Ring, they're still doing this. Seeing that whole thing, again, it's subjective, but that whole thing annoys me because when you remember the release of like Final Fantasy 15, and it's a little bit different because Squaresoft knowingly just didn't finish that game. Yeah. But it's more or less the same situation where in order to understand what was going on in Final Fantasy 15, you had to read a book, watch a movie, uh, watch like a, two a season anime of, series. Yeah, exactly. To get the entire story and the Souls games. And I can't speak. I've played uh, Dark Souls 1, 2 and Bloodborne. I haven't played um, Demon Souls or uh, Dark Souls 3. So uh, those games seem to me where it's like, yeah, that's bullshit. I don't want to watch some guy on YouTube talk about lore for three hours or have to go to or like go listen to like three different podcasts to understand the story. Yeah. I understand like Miyazaki's like one of the largest job creators in the world by <laughs> giving these people <laughs> yeah. channels and mm -hmm. allowing them to do whatever they want with the story or whatever or put the puzzle pieces together. But I don't want to have to do that just like, you know, when Final Fantasy 15 came out, people didn't want to watch all the other uh, stuff that came along with it. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. And that's, that's totally valid. Like I will listen to podcasts and put together the lore that way. You can, I mean, you can do it yourself. You can read 6,000 item descriptions throughout Jesus. the course of the game. You can do that, but like I don't, so I'm not going <laughs> to suggest that anyone else does it. Um, so like if you are thinking like, Hey, you know, why are you outsourcing the story development to other people? Uh, I get that as like a criticism of From Software uh, because like, honestly, the gameplay and like exploring is the draw to the level and I don't want to open up the menu and read a paragraph every time I pick up an item. That's not how I'm going to play these games. So I totally get that criticism of like the way they deliver a story um, I kept yeah. as I was playing Bloodborne, I kept because there was a lack of story and kind of a, a lack of motivation as to why I'm doing what I'm doing in the game. I tried to think of another game that comes close to that. And the only thing that kept coming up in my head 
was Shadow of the Colossus. Just like in Shadow of the Colossus, I felt like I was just going through these sections and going to these bosses just to see what new enemy was around the corner or what the new boss might look like. And that's Mm -hmm. kind of similar to Shadow of the Colossus, where you're just kind of going through this giant world just to see what the next thing is going to be. But even fucking Shadow of the Colossus has a story in it Yeah, that is very easy to understand. It's it's simple, but it's there. Yeah, for sure. I mean, they... You have a literal voice coming from the sky in Shadow of the Colossus telling you this is what you need to do if you want to wake up your your comatose girlfriend or sister or whoever it is on the horse. If you want to wake her up, go kill the Colossi. And then you're like, okay, I know why I'm killing the Colossi. In Bloodborne, at the very beginning, the dude tells you, go kill some beasts. That's what hunters do, but mm-hmm. that's yeah. it. Other yeah. than that, like, you know, <laughs> 20 hours into the game, you're not, you're totally like, uh, okay, I've killed a, a lot what is of this beasts. all for? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, so I, I definitely get that. So that's just, again, you know, the story is going to be very subjective. I mean, a lot of our thoughts are going to be subjective. Yeah. So I feel like I've been talking a lot. Um, let's jump into this gameplay. You're you're the Soulsborne vet. You've played a lot more than I have. Essentially, what are the fundamentals, I guess, as far as the mechanics go in, in Bloodborne? Okay, so fundamentals of the Soulsborne games are like, you lose your souls when you die. You're managing your stamina during combat. That's always been like one of the most important things in a Soulsborne game. And you are locked into animations that you queue up in Soulsborne games. So if you press the button to swing your sword, your guy will swing your sword no matter what you press during that animation. You can't, you know, cancel and dodge out halfway through your sword swing. That's a kind of key thing that makes the combat feel so deliberate in these games. That's, you know, there's other stuff I'm blanking on right now. Those are the main things. Oh. In Bloodborne, mm. what's up? Oh, I just wanted to say, um, adding to the whole going to retrieve your XP and stuff like that. Yeah. Bloodborne does it slightly differently. Uh, they're called blood, they're, they're called blood echoes in this game. Right. Uh, but they essentially work the same way as any Soulsborne game. But mm-hmm. the one change that was made for Bloodborne is that sometimes that the enemy that killed you will absorb your blood echoes and it's indicated by the color of their eyes. Uh, their right. eyes will kind of be like this this glowing blue, uh, which actually yeah. looks really fucking cool if you're in a... It d- does. Well, actually, most of this game, you are in a dark room. Um, <laughs> so. Yeah, this is a very dark game. <laughs> yeah, uh, this is like the blackest fucking game I think I've ever played in my entire life (laughs) it's some of those enemies will 
it doesn't have to be the enemy that kills you. Sometimes it'll just be an enemy in the vicinity. Like if you fall off a cliff and die, an enemy in the vicinity might pick up your souls and you might have yeah. to, I'm going to call them souls throughout the entire I thing. probably will uh, slip up as well. Yeah. yeah. So souls equal blood echoes, lamp equals bonfire. Uh, I'm going to keep, you know, <laughs> mixing up the terminology. They're the same thing. They are. They're the same thing. So uh, the other, I guess the other biggest changes in Bloodborne is that combat is way, way faster than Dark Souls. Basically only rivaled by Sekiro and how quick Sekiro is. Dark Souls mm. 3 is fast, but it's not as fast as Bloodborne. And uh, introducing guns as a replacement for shields is the uh, the other big thing in Bloodborne as far as gameplay goes. And they give you a shield really early in the game. And if you equip it, you'll quickly find out that it's bullshit. And like, I never even I was. Yeah. I don't, there's only one shield, right? Yeah, it's just a stupid wooden shield yeah. they give you. And as soon as you put it on, the first attack you block, someone will stagger you uh, out of it. And you'll oh, quickly really? be like, oh, this doesn't work. Yeah, oh, <laughs> it's a, a game, I think, from put that in there for Dark Souls players uh, to let them know, like, hey, no shields in this game. Uh, so Interesting, using, okay. Using your guns and, like, I don't know about you, Keith, when you play Dark Souls... I don't know if you parry a lot uh, with shields. So having just played through Dark Souls, man, that game is fucking slow. That game, <laughs> like... If you, if you go straight from Bloodborne is, to Dark Souls 1, yeah. the comp, But, I mean, I again, I love Dark Souls. After, like, an hour or so, like, I was used to it again. It was kind of right, like riding right. a bike. As far as the parrying goes, it's a little harder and dark souls i think for me it yes. was yeah um so i sometimes it depends on the situation it depends on the situation that i'm in most of the time i don't try it otherwise i'm just blocking and then waiting for my opening to attack yep i can only reliably parry the final boss in dark souls everything else i can't do but i was asking you that because i'm the same way i can't parry in dark souls games only a couple of bosses in the series Everything else, I don't mess with it at all. But in Bloodborne, parrying is much easier, and it's a bigger part of the like intended combat rhythm. Like you are supposed to use your gun to parry, whereas in Dark Souls, it's an option. In Bloodborne, I feel like they want you to parry a lot, and like a lot of bosses can be parried just with a single shot more than Dark Souls bosses. So the way I guess if you're listening and you don't know what we're talking about. Uh, is you have your melee weapon in your right hand in your left hand you have a gun and kind of in the middle of an enemy's attack animation if you shoot your gun you'll parry them and you can go uh, get a big they call it a visceral attack which is a good representation of what it looks and sounds like yeah. uh, when you do it they're yeah. pretty brutal and uh, the parry the window in bloodborne is so much bigger longer than it is in the dark souls games it's a lot more forgiving and i think it's because they really want you to do this uh, the, in in uh, bloodborne the animations of the enemies are very telegraphed yeah like uh, pairing in bloodborne almost just became second nature where i was just i was nailing it every time yep i do want to go back what you were saying about it kind of being more of a requirement I would still say it's 
very much optional. There were a lot of times where I was just wearing my Dark Souls boots and rolling around people and attacking oh, them yeah. from behind. For sure. Not required, but I think it's it's more intended that you try it. It's a bigger payoff, and that's mostly due to uh, the rally system in this game. Right, and that was the that was the next the next thing that's like different from the Souls games. In order to encourage you to like stay aggressive in combat and keep fighting, whereas in Dark Souls, if you get hit, your first inclination is to roll away and heal. Uh, in Bloodborne, they want you to stay in the fight, so they have this. They call it the rally system, where when you get hit your health won't decrease immediately. You'll see how much health you lost, but it won't be gone. They, they show different colors on your health bar. And if you attack an enemy while that kind of temporary health is still up there, you'll get some of it back. And so you can get hit and then immediately hit the enemy two or three times and you'll get most or all of your health back if you stay aggressive and keep hitting them. And... This really works with the parry and visceral system because sometimes the enemy will hit you during the parry, but if you get the visceral attack uh, in time, you'll get all that health back and you won't have to use your blood vials, a.k.a. Estus. So, like I said, I kind of dipped back and forth between what I was doing just to make the gameplay not as monotonous as I thought it was. I don't want to say this game is a hack and slash, it kind of is, but it's not like, you know, like I mentioned God of War and uh, Devil May Cry earlier. And like, yes, it's kind of like the DNA is there. Yeah. But this is like a little more methodical. It's a little slower in its approach. You aren't you aren't exactly mashing buttons. Um, it's very, right. I would say, rhythm based almost like I felt like I was just very much getting into a rhythm. Like I said, the, the enemy's attacks are very telegraphed. You can tell when you can get a parry off or mm -hmm. at least when you're able to dodge, you know, if, if you're not very good at parrying. But yeah, for sure. As far as like, you know, combat encounters go. So I guess this is like my whole issue with, I guess, that the battle mechanics is that, you know, I see an enemy. I'd let them do all their attacks or see what they're capable of, you know, and I would like I said, I just wear my Dark Souls boots at first and kind of roll around them or whatever and or try to fire off uh, uh, a gunshot to try and stagger them maybe try to get it as i was learning how to parry or whatever and keep in mind when we say you have a gun the gun's not really a weapon uh, it's not right. going to do any damage really or at least the damage right. is very insignificant um, it's more of just a tool to stagger the enemy essentially but i, I thought just the battles were very rinse and repeat on every single enemy that I came across. And I don't really want to talk about bosses yet, but I also thought all of the bosses were so easy. They were, it was just me constantly skirting around the edge of them attack from behind. I just, I just thought the combat was dull aside from like one very, very late encounter with, uh, Lady Maria. Um, mm -hmm. did I ever feel like I was engaged? in the game's combat as soon as i kind of learned how to do everything and how to approach everyone it kind of seemed mindless and i don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing in this know. kind of game mindless is not what they're going for so i think that would be a bad thing if that's how you feel because 
I thought they were kind of, I thought they were just, from playing Dark Souls, I thought there would just be more. I, and I don't know what case that would be. And then it was going back to Dark Souls and then just being like, oh, this is almost the same. Bloodborne is, I think, even though I love Dark Souls, Bloodborne is the better game when it comes to combat, uh, in my opinion. Um, I don't know if you share the same opinion, but I think Bloodborne is better because the way I play Dark Souls is not very engaging either, where I just hold up a shield <laughs> until an enemy <laughs> fucks up and then I go attack them, uh, go mm. and attack them. But at least I'm always, like you said, you're, you're always kind of on the attack in Bloodborne. There's not a lot of ways to defend yourself. Uh, so at least you're always moving, you know? Yeah, it's interesting. So like, this is something I've kind of realized as I've been replaying some of these games recently is like, the games are hard, they're difficult, but a lot of the enemies throughout the levels, if you just run up and start swinging on them, you'll stun lock them and kill them really quickly. Uh, and this mm -hmm. holds true throughout basically the entire game of bloodborne um you'll later in the games enemies have more stamina and you can't probably just stun lock, stun lock and kill them in one combo and you'll have to back off and then i guess it kind of depends on how the enemies are arranged so like you can't run up and just attack this dude because there's two other people covering this dude and you have to do a little bit more like strategy for it so like if you get the combat system if you understand all the tools that are available to you the regular enemies in bloodborne are pretty easy i think there are some very notable exceptions but most of them i think are very easy and i at this point after playing every modern from software game i very rarely die to regular enemies in the world like mm -hmm. almost never it, it, it is pretty easy I think it is. Yeah, it's like you said, it's just like I want to also combine it with what I was saying earlier, too, about the, the early retro games is that it's very much just pay attention, pay attention to what you're doing. You know, yeah, sometimes there is that one off enemy that you just no matter what you're doing, you won't see them and they might jump you and who knows, they might kill you or whatever. But yeah, when you come back, you're going to know that that person is there now and right. it's, and it's fine. These these games are so good at this, like, teaching you this space and, like, everything that's going to happen in this space. And so, like, when you replay the game, it's crazy to me how much I remember of each level. I remember where ambushes are in these games because they're so memorable. Mm -hmm. um, and that memory for me lasts even if I go years between playing it, whereas, like, you know, if I replay the new God of War game, I don't remember anything about where enemies are in that game, even though that's also a pretty engaging combat system. I think there's just something about the way From Software designs encounters and stuff that I find it to be really memorable. But well, anyway, the, oh, I just ahead. wanted to say, well, the difference there is that God of War relies heavily on the story and lore for world building, whereas a game like Bloodborne really relies on the atmospheric storytelling and all the mm -hmm. the enemy placement is part of the world building it seems natural whereas yeah. you know you walk into arena of god of war 
the enemies just exist. Yeah. I guess to address like the game feeling samey or like too easy or something like that. Bloodborne has a lot more expression you can do within the one weapon that you have. And so like it is kind of on you, I think, to mess around with using the trick weapon attacks and um, transforming your weapon, having fun like that. And that's where, like, you compared it to Devil May Cry or something. That's where that DNA really shines or shows is, like, how you can do a lot of different attacks just with the one weapon, whereas in a Souls game, it's it's very much like light attack, heavy attack. Those are your options with your sword, right? In Bloodborne, Mm -hmm. each weapon, I feel like, has, you know, 10 or 15 different animations or, like, combos that you can almost create using those trick attacks and it's kind of it's i don't know i think it's designed in a way where you're supposed to go through and use those and kind of make your own fun that way but i mean the regular enemies in the game i agree are pretty easy once you learn where they are a lot of the more difficult encounters in like normal levels are in the first level where you're learning the combat system after that you kind of have an idea of how to approach a lot of things, I think. There's a couple more points that I want to bring up, then I actually want to dive into the level design before I bring up bring up these points. I do want to state that I'm not one of these like from software tryhards where I'm like, oh man, this game is so easy, blah blah blah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm not doing that. I legitimately I don't know if it's because I have played so many retro games, and I think it also goes back to the fact that when I know that I'm playing a game for the show. It's like I can see the inner workings of the game see the working matrix. and I see the cogs <laughs> turning and everything. And I'm like, okay, I see what this game is trying to do. So I think that's also part of it. So I'm not, I could definitely see why somebody would be like, oh, this game is way too hard. You know what I mean? I could definitely see that. So as far as like difficulty goes, you know, your mileage is going to vary. And then as far as weapons go, uh, I think that's also where a lot of my dark dark shoes, (laughs) my dark shoes, (laughs) where my Dark Souls shoes came in. Because for the majority of the game, I was using Ludwig's Holy Blade. I wasn't Mm -hmm. even using the gun most of the time. Um, So I was just using that two-handed monstrous sword and just wrecking everybody. maybe Maybe that's what wrecked the game for me. Maybe I should have just fucked around with other stuff. But when I always looked at other stuff, I was like, no, this weapon is way better than everything else that I have. So uh, I uh, definitely recommend if you play again, play with the the saw cleaver or the saw spear. Uh, but I, the saw cleaver, I think, is the way to go that that makes it feel like more bloodborne, I think, mm-hmm. than playing with a sword. 
I mean, I my first playthrough, I played with, I think I played with that same sword, my first playthrough, all the way through. Mm-hmm. And then my second one was all, like, saw all those brutal Bloodborne weapons. It, yeah, it wasn't until the DLC where I finally switched up the weapon because you get, um, I don't remember who you get it from. You get the Holy Moonlight Sword, which yeah. basically you uses you- magic as well. Along mm-hmm. with after you beat um, after you beat Ludwig, that's when okay. you get that weapon. Um, that's kind of when I switched it up, but I think even for the most part, I only used that like a couple times. But I I mm-hmm. did throw it kind of into my rotation. These games are all about finding a weapon that you're comfortable with. Like it's one of the best parts about these games is that almost any weapon you pick up is good enough to beat the whole game with. It's all about finding one that you're super comfortable with. And that's going to be the best weapon for you. So if you're comfortable with that sword, then that is the best weapon for you. And even the starting weapons can carry you through the whole game. Even if you pick up something a little bit later that does a little bit more damage, if you're super comfortable with that starting weapon, that is going to be the best weapon for you. And I think that's something that's fairly unique to the From Software games. It's something in Dark Souls 2 your character might start with just a basic, you know, mace or an axe or something. And if you're super comfortable with it, that's the best weapon because that's what you're going to do the best with. See, when I first started, I was going for a pure strength build. Because I'm the type of player that wants to kill everything before it tries to kill me. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) I have no problem getting up in the face of motherfuckers and chopping them down. And so, yeah, there's just I'm I'm very much that nerd where I'm looking at the numbers. And there were some weapons where it was like it was better in like some areas than Ludwig's blade. But Mm -hmm. most of the time, I was just like, no, this is I'm wrecking everybody with this. Just the last thing I want to talk about real quick because it annoyed the fuck out of me was just the way the controller itself is set up i talked about like controller real estate in i think it was in returnal Mm -hmm. uh in how housemark mapped out the controller flawlessly with like regards to just how fast-paced that game was uh there's Mm -hmm. not a moment in uh returnal where you're kind of like fumbling around the controller you're like oh fuck i just i just pressed the wrong thing on accident or or whatever with how fast everything is moving it's very important that everything is mapped correctly Mm -hmm. and bloodborne i noticed like a button like circle does four different things does four different actions and then it's like somebody coming new into this game it's no wonder why they would accidentally just kill themselves in the heat of battle. And I know it kind of creates like those meme worthy moments where people are just like, oh, like oh, Miyazaki, you crazy, bro. Like, you know, like, <laughs> but sure. But also, like, I think the buttons that are mapped are cl- very clunky. It's it's borderline trash. You do get used to it after a few hours. Like you have to get used to it. But you shouldn't have to. It's something that I've talked about on plenty of games on the show where it's like, yeah, this really sucks, but you get used to it. And that was also just kind of my experience with like after not having played a Souls game in fucking what had been like six, nearly seven years at that point. Yeah, I don't things, you know, video games have come so far as to having just 
you know, the essential button layout. You know, games are very, you're playing a driving game. R2 is always the gas, you know, mm-hmm. like, yeah, you're playing an adventure game. Uh, you know, I guess I'm just speaking in, in PlayStation terms. X is jump or whatever, you know, or X is like accept, you yeah. know, and then there's always like a weapon wheel or something. Um, and that's the other thing. Like, I think the UI for Bloodborne is kind of clucky, like switching between weapons and side weapons with the D pad kind of sucks. Yeah, that's that's just something that like you just get used to through years of playing from soft stuff. And if you if you're coming to it when you're not in that world as much as I am, I guess I can see I can see a lot of the way FromSoft handles using items or like switching stuff with the D-pad because you need to use the D-pad down to switch what consumable you have equipped, I'm pretty sure. The one thing they did in Bloodborne that's cool is you have a dedicated button for healing, uh, which is not the case in Dark Souls. Uh, So I was thinking about like when you're talking about like controller layout being the cause of death the only time and i can remember that happening in a, a souls game is like i need to switch back to my estus flask and i press the button too many times so i automatic i scroll past it and then i get killed before i can heal that doesn't happen in bloodborne and yeah i don't share the frustration with the controller layout but it's it's i admit that it might be because i am just so in from software like comfort mode at this point that I don't remember what it was like when I first played it. Yeah. Something about this button layout reminds me of like a game. It it seems like a game that was made in like 2002 when there just wasn't, (laughs) there just wasn't standard button mapping, you know, where it's like past 2007 button mapping has just become people. Game developers have figured it out. They figured out the best way to play a thing whereas yeah bloodborne seems like a game that just it seems like a game that came out in 2002 but only in japan <laughs> you know <laughs> well, like if that makes any sense speaking it's, um, of you want to talk about fucking weird button mapping dude like the actual from software game from 2001 kingsfield 4 that has some real fucked up but uh I'm sure it controller does. layouts it's it, it was insane. the wild west of that stuff it is nobody insane, had figured yeah. it out but like from software and a couple other games um, are just automatically different by making attack beyond the shoulder buttons. Like all your attacks are based on the shoulder buttons. Whereas we got so used to games where it was like, you know, triangle is heavy attack, square is basic attack. And we, there's so many action games where it's like that. And so switching like from software does switch it up. It's interesting. I have a, I have the Asian version of Bloodborne, which changes the buttons. Like the dodge button is different in mine. It's very weird. Like it's different. Like Dark Souls is circle to confirm, interact, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's switched in my version of Bloodborne. Yes. Circle is, it's four different functions. It's running dodging jumping i'm pretty sure this is one of those games where you you have to hold down run and then press the button again to jump there's and there's something else that i'm forgetting it's fucking ridiculous though i (laughs) i just i don't know again i 
I hadn't played a FromSoft game or a Soulsborne game in like seven years. And the fact that I had to acclimate to this fucking weird ass button mapping was asking a lot of me. Um, I got through it, but I don't feel like I should have had to. So, I, I, dude, I have so many other notes here about how much do I really want to bitch about this game? <laughs> <laughs> I do want to say, man, like Blood Vials suck. Yeah, I was going to really, ask you how you felt. It really promotes grinding and at the same time, it's like I, I didn't. There's only a couple bosses that I died to. Uh, most of them, I as soon as I you know, got into the arena with them. They were fucking dead basically. Um, but I still left with like a little bit of health. And there were some cases where I'd like leave and go back to the hunter's dream, which is basically the hub world of bloodborne. And I'd realize, Oh fuck, I don't have any more blood vials. And then I would have to just go and grind them out. And I'm sure there's like some hardcore motherfucker out there is being like, well, maybe you should just play the game. Like, don't worry about your blood vials. But it's like, no, the game gives you the option to heal, and I want to heal when I want to heal. I just, I think the Estus Flash system from Dark Souls is a lot better. Is really weird that Bloodborne kind of regresses uh, with that, and and I suppose with the Rally system, it, it kind of gives you the option to heal without a blood vial. It's uh, there are a lot of things that if you bring criticism to Bloodborne, I will do my best to defend it because I think Bloodborne is very, very good in a lot of areas. Uh, Blood Vials fucking suck though. Like, and even as someone who really loves this game, as I replay Bloodborne more and more, the first time I played it, I was fine with Blood Vials because I uh, would just like throw on a podcast and go grind Blood Vials for a half hour and I didn't mind it. And then every time I replay it since then, I hate it more and more. And now I'm fully on like Blood Vials suck uh, mode okay and okay I, so i don't sound like a complete asshole <laughs> no dude like this i i'm totally with you they they suck and like i found optimal ways to grind blood vials but i don't i don't want to grind blood vials i want to go play the game more and exactly nothing sucks more in bloodborne than like so i'm not like you there are some bosses in bloodborne that take me 20 plus tries to beat nothing is worse than like feeling like you're making some progress against Orphan of Costs, but you're out of blood vials. So you have to halt any momentum you had and go fucking kill some pigs to grind <laughs> blood vials for 15 minutes. And this uh, this happened when I was... Because um, of so my last playthrough, I streamed the entire thing. And this was something where I was like, oh, well, sorry, everyone who's enjoying, you know, watching me try to fight Orphan of Costs, I got to go farm blood vials for 20 minutes. So... Hope you hope you enjoy just listening to me talk as I mindlessly kill some pigs, you know, <laughs> it's uh, it it sucks. And they've experimented with healing systems throughout like their years, I guess, like um, Demon Souls has consumable healing, too. And that also sucks because sometimes you got to farm that Dark Souls 2 has life gems, uh, which 
are consumables, but you also have your Estus in Dark Souls 2. So you have S- both. Side tangent. Are you a Dark Souls yeah. 2 apologist? I fucking love Dark Souls 2. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. And I won't talk shit. All right. Keep uh, going. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> so like they've been experimenting with the way healing works uh, throughout their games. And I don't, I don't know why after the clear success of Dark Souls 1, I don't know why they wanted to go back to full consumable in Bloodborne. There is a, like a diegetic reason for it, I guess. If you want to say like, I kill these dudes, they're carrying blood vials because everyone's addicted to this blood. And then they drop it when I kill them. But like, if you kill, if you kill pigs, they drop four blood vials. So that reasoning is out the window. Right. And I just think it sucks. It's horrible. So here's an interesting question for you. Yeah. Again, we're going to get to level design. I swear we're going to get there. <laughs> so what did you play Bloodborne on? Did you play it on your PS5? Uh, yeah, played it on PS4 first, and then my replay was on PS5. Okay. Uh, because I, it, when I play these games, I usually opt to play it on the hardware that it came out on. Um, okay. Man, was that a terrible decision with Bloodborne? Because holy fuck, these loading times, dude. The load times, <laughs> yeah. They're all, they are almost non-existent on ps5 there are a couple seconds i'm sure i've sh- i should have probably switched over <laughs> at some time but i did not want to fuck my saves up which i saved to the cloud which that will come into play later and man the loading times also overlap with the quote-unquote fast traveling or lack thereof oh god yeah bloodborne bloodborne is a huge huge game and it's like a lot of interconnected locations but you can't like you can kind of fast travel, but not like first you have to find a lantern and then you have to teleport to the hub world, the the hunter's dream. And then you need to find a tombstone, the tombstone that has the location on it that you want to go to. And then you teleport back out. But in between all of these steps are like for me, at least uh, were like these 45 to 50 second loading times. Yep. And it was it's, worse when it first released too. the the it, The load times you experienced when you replayed it here are better than they were when it first shit. released. Because like doing all of that stuff just to fast travel to a new area takes maybe at least like two and a half minutes altogether. It's it's unacceptable. <laughs> it's yeah. really and fucking it, bad. And it's weird because like Dark Souls One has fast travel. You can just travel between bonfires after the halfway point in the game dark souls 2 has straight up fast travel from the beginning dark souls 3 also straight up fast travel you don't need to go back to your hub world in any of those games to fast travel so i don't know why they're doing it that way in bloodborne unless there's some kind of story reason that i think doesn't justify it yeah i you know again i'm not some soulsborne tryhard, but the only brutally difficult thing i found in this game were sitting through those fucking low times <laughs> and in the beginning uh, from what i remember people talking about when the game first released you didn't even have those item description things to read during load times it was just literally like a blank loading screen hmm. at least now during those load times you can i don't even read remember something that and be like huh okay now i can read the pungent blood cocktail item description while I wait for this loading screen. So that's cool.
So the level design, finally, we can talk about it because I've, I've been wanting to talk about it. I feel like I've been complaining about this game far too long. You've um, been teasing this for a while now. I, I know. Um, it's, it's funny because I was bitching about the fast travel, but there were times that I actually just kind of favored taking a long ass walk where I needed to go because then at least then I would be able to gather echoes and blood vials mm-hmm. as I'm walking through, you know, the world or whatever. It at least felt more, I guess, engaging to me than just having to sit through three minutes of loading screens, you know? At least I'm <laughs> being proactive about, you know, leveling my character up and stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that's all in service, I think, just to the fucking awesome level design. Uh, it, it's not exactly... Well, maybe it is. It, it's kind of like close to like a, a 3D Metroidvania almost, you know? Yeah, I, and I don't remember who I was talking to. But we were talking about FromSoft games specifically, and the one thing, you know, hands down that they excel at is just those level designs. And yep. I think, um, you know, you mentioned the, the first area, uh, Central Yarnum. You know, something something like that, you know, is comparable to Super Mario Brothers and World 1-1, um, which is something I covered on the show long ago, um, and just how elegant... The design of that uh, specific level is, is as far as tutorials go right it's like a little bit more like you smash your face into this thing and once you solve it then you're ready to go it's a, it's a little bit less elegant than half-life 2 or uh super mario brothers like that but i think it is one of the better tutorial areas that from has ever uh, put together for once i think you're undercutting it a little bit i i feel like it is very similar to one one because central yarnum is I, I think we've already said it it is the beginning location of bloodborne and i did dabble in a new game plus run for maybe like i don't know an hour or something like that because i really mm-hmm. just kind of wanted to replay that first area as just like this overpowered monster but as I was playing that, I was paying attention to just the way everything was laid out. And in that area specifically, it, it is litter. Don't get me wrong. Like the design and enemy placement and everything throughout this game is, uh, I guess, damn near magical in, in some aspects. Mm-hmm. But as far as Central Yarnum goes, the game strategically places just about every type of enemy you will encounter in the game. There are big enemies. There are small enemies. There are fast enemies. There are long-ranged enemies. Um, there are enemies that are just placed out in the open, and there's enemies that are placed in areas where they're hidden to kind of teach you all of these things that you have to look out for in the game. You know, you look yeah. at the, the two bosses in Central Yarnum, for instance. These are basically the two kinds of bosses that you will face throughout the game. You have Ralph, uh, Father Gascoigne. He's like, you know, the smaller, faster, more methodical boss. Um, Humanoid. Yeah, yeah, right. And then you've got the Cleric Beast, and he's very much the equivalent to the other very large, slow-moving, damage-dealing larger bosses. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the more important things about this area is that as as large as it is um it, it's large enough that it teaches you early on that you can 
literally just run past everyone and and just fuck off, <laughs> which yep. is in a lot of times uh, vital because you will just be making a run to regrab your souls uh, that you left behind after death. So mm-hmm. that is also another important thing that it teaches you because it is it, it, it's kind of important. Um, so now yeah. I feel like I've just kind of been rambling. I don't know if there's anything you'd like to add. I don't know if, yeah. if that even made sense, but I, I just wanted to, I, I do think Central Yarnum is a masterclass in as, as far as like tutorial areas go. Yeah. So Central Yarnum does have very specific spots that teach you very specific things about Bloodborne specifically, but also about like this kind of game. So they have, your first couple enemies are just going to be some dudes that wake up uh, from the ground and you may not see them at first. So that's first of all, teaching you like, you know, always be aware and stuff like that. And then also how to fight a single Yarnamite, uh, the, you know, the, the dudes wandering around the streets. And then as you go down the stairs from the lamp, you'll come across a group. There's like, I think there's like three or four of them walking down the street. And so that's going to teach you how to approach a group And then as you go further down that street, there's that big fire and there's like, there's like 12 dudes and a couple of dogs over there. So that's teaching you like, and this is something that a lot of new players have trouble with that, uh, that big like fire area because they just rush in and then they get ganged up on. And it's, it's teaching you like one of the core things that all from software games have been about, which is always fight things one at a time. Like never fight a group if you have any control over it. And right before you get there, you get some pebbles that you can use to throw and get uh, enemies' attention. You can also shoot your gun uh, to draw enemies away. It's teaching you that. Over in another part of Central Yarnum, you have those brick trolls, which are like the parry tutorial enemies because they're very... They hit really hard, but they're very easy to parry. And yeah, like... So in that way, they are giving you all these diverse experiences and teaching you about different ways to approach these different enemies in different situations. And so in that way, it is a really good tutorial. It's just a, it's just a little bit less... It, it requires you to die and bang your head up against some of those a little bit more than the Super Mario Brothers tutorial or something like that. And also like there are some things that I feel like from could tell you because what you're doing is a little bit more complex than a Mario game. Uh, And that's something that they've, they've almost never been very helpful with tutorializing. You'll get like one message at the beginning of the game that says, you know, press L2 to fire your gun, but it doesn't tell you that firing your gun is used to parry. It just says press L2 to fire your gun. Um, Elden Ring is the first time they've actually done like what we would think of as detailed tutorials. So like when I played Bloodborne, I didn't know that the gun was used to parry because they didn't tell me. They just said, press L2 to fire your gun. And I was like, okay, I figured out that the gun is good for drawing enemy attention, but I didn't figure out it was good for parrying because I'm not a parrier in the Souls games. Is there not one of those like little goopy skeleton guys that tells you that uh, you can perform a visceral? I'm pretty sure there, there is in the Hunter's there Dream. Might be, it's, it's either in the Hunter's Dream or it's in Yosefka's clinic, uh, the first location where you wake up. 
I don't know. There's when you get those, it's like, it's not as bad as the one in Demon Souls, but you are in a room that gives you like 10 messages that tells yeah. you like all these, and it's a lot to the like Hunter's read. Dream has like 15 of them. Yeah. Uh, it has quite a lot. It's a little bit more spaced out in Dark Souls and Bloodborne. In Demon Souls, it's literally like a pit that has like 25 messages and that's your tutorial. <laughs> um, so like, it's just a lot to take in. And I guess I just read it and then forgot because there's a lot of things to memorize. And once you leave that room, that information is gone, you know. I think the one thing you have to remember when it comes to Super Mario Brothers is that with hindsight, it's easy to be like, oh, yeah, Mario makes a little more sense. It's a little easier. But what you have to remember is when Mario Brothers came out, there was nothing else like it. So a lot of people died on that Goomba back in 1985. Um, oh, yeah, I'm sure. So, I mean, obviously, there's only so many control or buttons on the controller. You're good. You're bound to figure it out. But, um, you know, that that could have been very difficult for a lot of people. That World 1-1 might have been the only world a lot of people might have played through back then. Um, yeah, I, I'm <laughs> just sure. Just kind of funny to think about. But <laughs> it's just a just a little bit more elegant or like right now I'm playing Half-Life 2 and Half-Life 2 does a lot of tutorialization through things that you see that immediately make sense in like five seconds when then you need to do it yourself and Bloodborne from software has never been good at tutorials in my opinion but Central Yarnum is one of the better ones I think like the average from software game you are literally just read a message, walk three steps, read another message, walk three steps, read another message. And sooner or later, those messages are going to, you're going to forget what the last one said, because now you're reading a new one. Yeah, Dark Souls, I mean, that first area before Firelink Shrine, I mean, they don't tell you anything. Yeah. Well, they have, again, it's the messages on the ground. And it's, you learn by doing it, in the Undead Asylum and in Central Yarnum. That's the good part about the tutorials is it's not like a it's not like an Assassin's Creed tutorial where it's a bunch of pop-up windows interrupting what you're doing, which they actually do do that in Elden Ring now. It teaches you about death early because in Yosefka's Yosefka's why can't I say that name? Yosefka's Yosefka's clinic. Yeah. <laughs> there's that werewolf right away and you are unarmed. Um, and you can very much kill that werewolf if you don't have a weapon, if you're good enough. I wish there was an achievement for that because uh, <coughs> somebody did that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it, it very much teaches like you are more or less supposed to die at that point, essentially. And then that's the a, game teaches that's a from you software thing. They always do that. Yeah, that you um, it makes more sense in Bloodborne because there's the hub world, right? And then right. that teaches kind of gives you what I just talked about, how there's like the 15 messages all over the, what do you want to call it? The hunter's dream. Uh, it's also mm -hmm. where you talk to the doll to level up. So it also teaches you that like, also like, oh, there's this whole other area. Also, if you happen to die that you can go yeah. to and, and kind of, I guess, rearm yourself or like regain your composure or, or what have you. Right. But like, so back to central Yarnum and like why it's a great, like an example of great level design is like, this is that magical from software level design. So like aside from 
being a first level tutorial zone, you also get one of their best levels, I think, in terms of what I love about their levels, how like you're always pushing into unknown spaces and you have no idea what is in the next room. But there's these magical moments when you find a shortcut back to the lamp. And in central Yarnum, until you beat a boss, I think there's just one lamp. And it's a huge level. Uh, you get a lamp after you beat a boss every time. But but until that point, it's just one lamp. And you have several shortcuts that bring you back uh, very close or like literally to the lamp. And that's one of the best things about exploring a From Software level is like you are so far away from where you are comfortable you know, you're pushing into this unknown space. Like I literally have no idea what's waiting for me. And maybe you're running low on blood vials or in a souls game, you're running low on Estus and lo and behold, you turn the corner and here's a shortcut back to the lamp. And there's so many magical moments in Bloodborne, Dark Souls one, a couple levels in Dark Souls three, a uh, demon souls is kind of built this way too in, in some levels. Well, there's that and there's that big moment in Dark Souls where you are leaving um, the undead parish. Yes, and then you find that huge shortcut to Firelink, and yep. it's this whole like, holy fuck, this whole place is connected. And Bloodborne has that very same thing going on where I'm leaving the where I left the swamp and I'm roaming around yeah. this area, and I'm like, and it's been like four or five. I'm getting goosebumps talking about it. It's been like four or five <laughs> hours, and I'm like. Oh shit! I'm back in Central Yarnum. Yeah, <laughs> like, from the, the uh, from the from the Forbidden Woods. That's a yeah. So Bloodborne is like kind of connected that way. So there's there's a couple roads that lead back to Cathedral Ward, and um, there's a couple that lead back to Central Yarnum, as you said. And that's what make that's what makes Dark Souls One such a marvel because there are so many like connections between the levels in there. So like the levels have that level design where you're constantly looping back to that one bonfire, but then there are connections between the levels themselves and they've gone away from that uh, as the series or as their history has gone along as a developer, like dark souls three is not like that at all. Dark souls two is not really like that at all. And Sekiro is not like that either. Really? But in Bloodborne, you still do get a piece of that. And I think they've moved away from it because it, it must be so fucking hard to design it that way and have things like make sense in a, you know, as you're building a world to make these connections. It's so much easier to make the way Dark Souls 2 works, where it's like a hub and spokes, or the way Dark Souls 3 works, where it's a very linear path. And like, not to shit on, not to say that linear design is bad but when you have a level like central yarnum that has these connections to other levels while also having connections within itself it's yeah like you said it's magic and that's it's something that from software does i think better than anyone else and they're continuing it in uh in elden ring
So are there any locations in this game that are the most memorable to you? Do you have any favorites? Yeah. Central Yarnum is, uh, as we've just talked about, uh, the research hall and the fishing hamlet in the DLC are so good. Like, level design-wise, I guess, like, not as much with, like, the shortcuts. Well, the research hall does, but the fishing hamlet's a more linear thing. But, like, the atmosphere in those places, the way the enemies are designed, the sound design, the way everything looks and sounds is just, like, incredibly memorable uh those are dlc though in the main game uh hemwick charnel lane is like quintessential bloodborne if you're not talking about like a in the city thing this is the the level that has all those hags that are you know uh laughing and screaming uh we leading up to the witches of hemwick boss fight uh that one's really great and uh old yarnum is really good for being a being a fun level, you know, you're in the city still, so you have this this wonderful city architecture to see, but also having a little like self-contained story within it. Yeah, Old Yarnum is really really good too. Yeah, there was um I mean there was we're going to talk about it in the graphics. There's some areas that I thought were kind of copy and pasty or whatever. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about it a little later, but my two favorite areas one of them was also from the DLC, uh, was the uh, Hunter's Nightmare. Okay. And the other one was Kanehurst Castle. Oh, fuck yeah, yeah. Both of those are great for different reasons, but yeah. And as far as like the DLC goes, I mean, I think it's it's weird. Um, I think the DLC is, for me, better than the actual game itself. I really fucking like the DLC for this game. It's, it's great. It's the best From Software DLC, I think. And... You're right. Like, I think it is better than a lot of the main game. It's some of their best content in general, I think, the Bloodborne DLC. And it's it's funny because, like, obviously Central Yarnum's level design is fantastic. We just talked about it for how long. Yeah. Aesthetically, it doesn't hit me the same way as the Hunter's Nightmare is, which the Hunter's Nightmare is essentially just a reskin of Central Yarnum. Yeah. But it's a little bit smaller and some paths are blocked off but at the hunter's night i just love how the hunter's nightmare is lit it's not as like dark as central yarnum and the entire place is just fucking flooded with blood like it just yeah it's fuck it's really fucking cool something about the blood in this game it just looks perfect like they got (laughs) the like the red the shade of red perfect they did yeah it's a uh it's using a lot of the map from the Cathedral Ward leading up to the Vicar Amelia boss fight. And then off to the side, I think there's some things that kind of remind me of Central Yarnum. But like the thing. Oh, yeah. I was thinking of the Cathedral Ward. Yeah, you're right. Sorry. Yeah. The thing about the Hunter's Nightmare that makes it cool to me is seeing those same. You recognize like that same staircase and some of those same areas. but everything's all fucked up because it's a nightmare it's like crumbling on itself it's like visually very cool and it's a good trick by from to reuse assets that they used in the main game but now it's all falling apart and they did the same thing in dark souls 3 and to a similar like good effect yeah and then uh canehurst castle is just so fucking cool but i also love the boss encounter at the end of this area 
where you're just fighting him one on one on on a roof, mm-hmm. and I don't know, the, and, and the whole castle is just drenched in atmosphere. It really, and that's the thing about Bloodborne too, which actually <laughs> leads me to a question for you, um, because Bloodborne really kind of leans into a lot of horror. And you've gone on the record as saying that you hate horror video games. Uh, you do not like anything remotely scary. And I'm not calling Dave out on this. He has said it many times. He's no, those very are vocal. my words. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, Bloodborne can be scary at times. So how did you deal with that? Or does it even matter to you? Yeah, this is weird. This is something I struggle to explain uh, because the reason I don't like a lot of horror stuff is because I don't like jump scares and um, I don't like the feeling of waiting for a jump scare. Right. So like in a horror game, I, I played uh, until dawn recently in a horror game or a movie. Also, you are waiting for the jump scare and that's what they're, they're constantly doing that building of tension and release of tension and building it back up and stuff like that. Right. Bloodborne has jump scares. They have enemies that jump out of you from, you know, through busting through doors, uh, jumping out of, like from behind corners. It is constantly full of that stuff. And a couple of things I think mitigate that. And that makes it like why I don't find this to be scary. So number one, the message system where you can write messages for other players. And I read the messages that other players write. And so a lot of times there will be a message that says like ambush ahead. So I can see that and be like, okay, jump scare coming. And sometimes I do get jump scared in like when something busts through a window, but it's not so bad because whatever just jumped through the window, I'm just going to fucking kill it right away. And that's not how most horror games work, right? Something like Until Dawn, you're basically watching a movie. You have no recourse if something jumps at the screen at you. You can't kill it. So. Yeah. That's that might be something that helps in Bloodborne. The other thing that makes it not scary is that atmospheric horror is something I love. Like I love atmospheric and psychological horror. I just don't want anything jumping at the screen at me. So like I really like Silent Hill 2, which is a scary game, but there's not things jumping out at you in that game. Soma is another one I really love. There are no jump scares and there's like one jump scare in that whole game. So like atmospheric horror, which is what Bloodborne is most of the time, the way the levels are and the things you see and the things you hear, the enemy designs. I love all of that stuff. I always have. It's just like, I don't want to play Resident Evil because I don't want things jumping at the screen at me or fucking Dead Space or something like that. Yeah, I think it's because if an enemy jumps out of like out of a corner, it's it's not jumping into the screen it's not a full screen shot of this horrible thing like there would be in you know a a different game or a horror movie or something like that it's literally just a dude busting out of a a door and then he hits me maybe and takes off you know 30 percent of my health and then i destroy him immediately i I think that's like you said there's there's yeah there's no build-up it just happens right and when you play from soft games, you start to predict the situations where there is going to be an ambush. You know, you're like, mm-hmm. I'm coming yeah. into a room and there's an item in the middle of this room. 
when I go for that item, something is going to drop down and attack me. So I'm ready for it. I, I can predict when a lot of it's going to happen. I mean, even if you pan the camera around, you might see the enemy just hanging out. Yeah. Or if like, you... Well, if I'm you just press... going to shoot you with the fucking gun and let's get this over with. Yeah. Or if you press the, <laughs> uh, press the target lock button, it'll lock on to any enemy that's in view. Yeah. Even if it's hiding in the darkness. here and talk about uh stuff that didn't well at least it didn't scare me let's talk about the bosses real quick yeah i don't want to spend too much time on these guys there's a lot of them so i guess let's just cut the fat out and uh were there any that stood out to you for better or worse yes uh so i don't think there are any bosses in this game that are really bad uh because i think this is something that from software does really well and i mean you play a lot of older games you i think you can agree with me here when boss fights are usually bad in video games like there's there it takes a very special game and special developer to make good boss fights i think yeah, yeah. and uh, i think from software like is consistently very good at making boss fights they make some that suck and there's some that are, aren't very fun uh, but i think in bloodborne they're generally very good and so some there's of my two that come to mind that I absolutely was like, this is fucking stupid, but I'll save it. I'll, I'll let you. All right. So the ones that I think are really, really good are uh, Maria. We talked we talked a little bit about her earlier. I think from software has fallen in love with multi-phase boss fights and Bloodborne was like the beginning of this uh, where most of the bosses have at least two phases, especially later in the game and in the DLC. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Maria is a good way to do that, I think, where she has two, she has three phases, but each phase just builds on the previous one. It's not like phase two is completely different from phase one, uh, which is something that bothers me in a lot of them. So Maria's good. Uh, Orphan of Costs, I really love. Um, that's the one where I got that intended, like, this took me 25 tries, but each time I did a little bit better and learned a little bit more. And then when I finally beat him, I had that awesome like moment of triumph. So I like Orphan of Koss a lot. And uh, I really like Father Gascoigne. It's an early thing that even I picked up the story of Father Gascoigne. And it's a good like, it's a good test of like, you made it through Central Yarnum to this. Are you actually ready to play this whole game? Father Gascoigne's the test of that, I think. So I guess just off the top of my head, those are three that I really love. I cheesed the shit out of out of Father Gascoigne because all I did <laughs> was um because I started out with the axe. I, mm -hmm. I don't remember what the axe is called. Um so I started with the hunter's starting... axe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. So I, I, I started out with that and I would transform it so that it's just basically like this very uh it has very long reach uh, yeah. once you transform it spin to win baby yeah i essentially just put a gravestone between him and i 
mm-hmm. and was just I would charge up my heavy attack and fucking nail him and he would just get stuck on the grave every single time. Uh-huh. And I'm like, yeah, all right, there we go. <laughs> like, and and that is another thing about from software games. If you figure out something like that, that will help you beat a boss, fucking do it and don't feel bad about it. Do anything yeah, you can. That's another thing about this game that it has in common with those early 80s games is the way you can approach these bosses. Now, obviously, like the programming in Bloodborne is much better than something made in 1988. Like we can mm-hmm. both agree on that. <laughs> but you could approach almost every boss in Bloodborne like the same way you would approach like a difficult boss in like a 1990s beat em up or something. I had um Martin on from Reviews Brothers and we were talking about um the bosses in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and how, you know, some some games like those just have the shittiest bosses because of how poorly that they were programmed. Uh, so you would always just have to find a way to cheese the boss in order to get through it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that very, not very much applies to Bloodborne, but I feel like a lot of it kind of does. Like now with like the older games, like we pretty much agreed that like, yeah, it sucks that you have to cheese the bosses in, in those retro games because the boss fights are so broken and they are so unfair because of that uh, due to those limitations that you know in that case it just means that the game was very poorly designed but then there's the argument for like a a game like battletoads right you know even like a game like bloodborne or like battletoads people will be like well i mean you could just play the game legitimately and like yeah you could and people certainly have, but why would you if the game gives you the tools to just break open the mechanics? Mm-hmm. If Bloodborne was actually designed with the intent for you to fight the bosses, quote unquote, legitimately, the mechanics would just be tighter, uh, tighter and like more engaging. To be fair, I think Gascoin's one of the only ones that you can kind of cheese like that. A lot of them don't have opportunities to do it like that at least in my experience you you really do need to learn most of those bosses see and that's the thing too is where why i didn't like the bosses that most of the bosses either is because most of the time i was just very much rolling around and just getting stabby with everybody you know it it, i almost (laughs) approached every boss the exact same way and i had no problem yeah Um, i think you and i were talking about orphan of costs off air like a few weeks ago and you said you really kind of i mean you even just stated a few minutes ago how you were kind of banging your head against him and i beat him in one try because i was just using the same tactics and that's that's why I like lady maria so much as she is my favorite boss because i felt like because she's so quick because she has so much power she can cover so much ground I felt like there was no other boss quite like her in which I felt like I really had to pay attention to what Hmm. the bosses were kind of doing because you really do have to read her patterns. And it wasn't just a case of rolling behind her and jabbing her because she will fuck you up. Um, It was like the first time in like 25 hours where I felt like I had to actually use the mechanics in the game. And I think that's probably why I like the fight so much, because it just felt so engaging, whereas all the other ones were just like, 
I'm just going to keep rolling around and <laughs> fucking hit you in the ankles or whatever, yeah. you know, like the the tried and true strategy of like getting up in a boss's butt crack. Definitely. <laughs> that is the strategy for like every big boss in every Souls game, every FromSoft game, basically. Orphan of Cost, though, like that was the one I had to memorize all of his attacks and be like this attack i just need to dodge i can't attack afterwards because there's another one coming this attack i can dodge and go hit him a couple times and then dodge out this attack i can parry this attack i can parry but it's too far away i can't get up there for the visceral attack so don't bother like i really had to memorize orphan of cost because he's so aggressive that if you if you just rush in there in my experience you will get uh, totally wrecked. Um, Maria is also the same way though. You have to memorize her, but a lot of them, like there are a lot that if you are good at the combat, you don't have to memorize Vicar Amelia's moves. You just say like, Oh, she's raising her arms. I should get away from right in front of her because that's how these bosses all work. When they, you know, raise their arms up to slam down, I need to get to the side. That's how it works. So a lot of them, I kind of think like, if you are good at the combat, you don't need to memorize all the moves. You can kind of react to what they're doing and just dodge out of the way. But for a couple of them, Orphan of Koss, uh, Ludwig, Maria, Gascoigne at the beginning, but you can use the gravestones uh, to do that. And then uh, German at the end, I did have to learn a couple of his moves because he hits really hard if you get caught. Um, there are a couple of them that you really do need to learn and then you can parry a lot of those bosses too, which is really, really cool and makes a lot of them a lot more satisfying because like they are these really powerful creatures. But when you get that parry and they drop down, you're like, aha, I gotcha. I'm, I, I am the one who knocks, you know, you have those moments sometimes. Um, I remember my first fight, the first time I beat Orphan of Koss, I was out of blood vials. It was like attempt number 30 and he had really low health. I had no blood vials left and I had really low health and he wound up for an attack. And I was like, I got you. And I got that parry and visceral to beat him. And it was like the best feeling. So I, I do agree. Some of the bosses, if you're good enough, you can just react and you'll win that way. And my replay through the game, I beat most of the bosses on my first try, but there are some that I, I did have to spend, you know, five, 10, 20 attempts, like memorizing what they do. And as far as bosses that suck, and I'm just going to throw these two out, out there okay. because I think they're the worst bosses in this game. And that is Mikalesh and, <laughs> uh, the witches, uh, witches of Hemwick. W yeah. Witches of Hemwick. Uh, okay. I think both of those bosses are just, they're not hard. They just suck. Um, and Mikalesh like in particular is, just tedious like he, he's essentially you are locked in this maze with him and he just keeps running the fuck around mm -hmm. and he can run faster than you so you're never catching up with him and he even can like teleport through like some mirrors or whatever and end up like on the other side of the maze and you have to mm -hmm. go find him it wasn't until i had to go to a guide to like figure out like how the fuck do i fight this guy and you essentially basically have to skirt him into like two particular rooms and mm -hmm. then he will finally fight you and it just it dude it took me so <laughs> fucking long 
to actually even get him to go to the rooms then too because like he still just would like his whatever ai he's run on like he just would not go in the rooms <laughs> but dude it took forever like fucking he's not hard but it's just so fucking tedious. It fucking sucks. He he also has one move. Uh, it's like this big magic attack that will kill you in one hit if it hits you. Uh, so that, coupled with the fact that you have to chase him around and memorize the rooms uh, that he goes into. Mikolash took me like 10 tries in my most recent playthrough, which was more than almost any other boss. I love Mikolash, but purely for the way his character is and the way he's just like rambling and ranting the whole time as you're chasing him around dude that made me hate him even more i was like shut the fuck up <laughs> i i ate it up <laughs> majestic a hunter is a hunter even in a dream but alas not too fast the nightmare swirls and churns the fact that when you kill him he he's in there like doing some kind of research or something like that uh, like he had yeah. they had made this kind of like dream world where he can basically like spend all the time in the world researching and stuff so like when you kill him he he says something like you know i'm waking up i'm gonna forget everything but the way you get into that place is by interacting with his dead and shriveled body in the real world so that moment like made a really big impression on me that like you're not waking up okay. to anything dude like it's over okay I, I really love that fight just from flavor and the witches of hemwick is not a very fun fight uh but it is funny that like they are just basically collecting eyes this game has an obsession with eyes like um having eyes is going to grant you the ability to kind of like interact with and commune with the great ones that's what they think that's why um oh willem that's his name the old guy in the rocking chair above uh when you fight rom that's why he's always just rambling about eyes give me eyes and the witches of Hemwick are just collecting eyes. So like they have that attack where they'll grab you and jump on you and start scooping your eyes out. So I love that. Yeah. But the fight yeah. kind of sucks. I agree. I um definitely killed the shit out of that that dude. Um <laughs> in the rocking what, chair. What was his name? You just said it. Willem. Yeah, in the rock. Yeah. I told it because I was like, well, this is a boss if I've ever seen it. And then like, no, he just he just died. Yeah, he just <laughs> like, he's oh, just shit. an old man. He's a. Uh, <laughs> I think he drops a rune or something like that. Yeah, I'm sure he does. Yeah, let's see. Uh, I hate uh, I hate Rom. That's probably my least favorite fight in the game is Rom. Uh, it's just, literally just this giant turd. <laughs> just because, again, he Rom has this magic attack that'll kill you in one hit, and the arena is full of spiders, and it's just kind of a tedious thing where I need to. I need to take out as many spiders as I can so I don't get ganged up on. And well, that's I think that's just the 
I think it's like the strategy for it. Yeah, that's thank you. Yeah, that's but, essentially a, that's kind of what you want to do. But it's not fun. I don't enjoy. No, it's not. I don't enjoy killing thirty five spiders before I get to turn my attention to the boss. That's not and, interesting to and me. Yeah, and only take a couple hits off of him. Right. Yeah, it's it's just not a very fun fight and I struggle with it too like I get I get hit by those magic attacks even though they're pretty easy to avoid. Yeah, I don't like Rom. Just thinking I there's not that many other fights that I think suck. Like the Celestial Emissary is not a great fight, but it looks cool. Just these big blue Mr. Yeah. Meeseek dudes and a giant Mr. Meeseek dude. <laughs> this is a Meeseek's box. Let me show you how it works. You press this. I'm Mr. Meeseek's. Look at me. So That's like, the perfect way to describe them, yeah. There's no other way to describe it without actually just, you know, using real words. Um, it's a, It looks cool, but it's not a fun fight. So as far as the graphics go, I'm kind of torn. And it's funny because I did share like a bunch of pictures on Instagram when I was doing my playthrough. Like there are parts of this game that I think are genuinely gorgeous. Um, yeah. Especially after you beat Rom and like the world transforms and it's it gets very uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Saturated, I guess, with color. Yeah, the sky turns like this amazing like red color. Yeah. Yeah, and. The architecture of Yarnum, just looking at all like the old, like um, basically like these Italian stylized like cathedrals and they're all densely packed into like the streets and everything. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it really makes the world of Bloodborne look incredibly vast, vast mm -hmm. and dense. Um, but at the same time, like, man, I just... <sighs> A lot of the areas look samey. Like, obviously, inside of dungeons and, like, churches and castles and stuff like that, they're going to kind of tend to look pretty much the same almost. Um, but, it, like, obviously the woods look the same, but I can't argue anything about that. But <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, trees are trees, like, at the end of the day. But, like, after a few hours, like, as far as, like, the environments and stuff goes, I'm kind of, like man like yeah i get it this looks like old europe like i don't know i i just felt like it was it got a little stale after a while um and i think that's why i like hunter's nightmare so much and canehurst because to me those are such standard such stark contrast of what the rest of the game looked like like i said you know hunter's nightmare is just very bright it's filled with tons of red like dripping blood everywhere and as far as Kanehurst Castle goes, I mean, once you're inside the castle, like it has a lot of color in it. And that's also the other thing where I feel like a this game has the very like 2000, like mid aughts. Uh, let's put like a brown filter all over everything, which I really fucking hate. And then on top of that, like like we said, this game is very dark all the time. Um, mm -hmm. A good portion of this game is you just stumbling around the dark it's incredibly it is, hard it to is see. a dark game but it is lit like this isn't a horror game where it's dark and you need to 
carry a flashlight around. It's not like that. You can you can see yeah, everything yeah. in the game. The I don't know, man. Like the I don't think this is one of those games that has a a brown filter over it. Like this isn't Fallout New Vegas or like Gears of War or something like that. This I feel like this game is very it's just mostly dark and a lot of the areas are dingy and that's part of the like color filter. But I don't think this is one of those games that's like brown is the most prominent color. I, I, I don't really see that in this game either. A lot of the areas do have similar color palettes for sure. And I will agree that a lot of the areas look the same because you, a lot of the areas are in the city of Yarnum, which it wouldn't make sense for them to have very different architecture and stuff everywhere uh, in the city, mm. uh, especially. But by virtue of half of the game taking place within the city of Yarnum and then half of the game being in some kind of, you know, woods or thing that looks like uh, Yarnum but isn't quite Yarnum, it does look similar. That's probably why I like the fishing hamlet so much because it's a, it's a blue it has a blue filter over yeah, it. Yeah. It's uh <laughs> and the it looks like a fishing village and that doesn't that's not something that the rest of the game looks like. Same with the yeah. research hall. The research hall is um you're inside of this laboratory where they're doing fucked up experiments and that's not something that a lot of the rest of the game deals with. A lot of the rest of the game is like city streets or going inside houses and stuff like that. And like, like obviously the game is going for a very specific type of atmosphere. It, it yeah. does feel like you are going just through this ye old English city after it has been swept by a plague. Like mm-hmm. everybody is sick or dying. There's even coffins that line the streets. Like, yeah. you know, it, it's very much going for a thing and it does that thing very well. I just don't like that thing after a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just becomes very samey. L- let me ask you something. Uh, sure. Because you mentioned the coffins lining the street. Uh, a common criticism that Bloodborne gets is uh, for the clutter in the game, where there's like stacks of books everywhere. Or and this is like the beginning of the, you know, you go into a house and there are tables and chairs to break if you roll through. And basically like there is all this destructible stuff around or even the coffins, you can't destroy the coffins, but there are coffins lining the streets of Yarnum. And some people really criticize that. Like they really dig the more empty feeling that demon souls and dark souls have where there's not a bunch of shit everywhere. How do you feel about that? Before I, before I tell you what I think, how do you feel about that? Hmm. Cause that is part of the visual design of, uh, Bloodborne and later games that From does too. I mean, again, I have literally, other than what you've told me at the beginning of the episode, I have no context for what the fuck is going on in this game. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, as far as just set dressing, like, yeah, I'm fine with it. Like, why, you know, if they really don't have any purpose, why would you be able to roll into them and break them? Like, that's the thing with dark souls like yeah there's a lot of destructible things you can roll into but a lot of them don't have anything so what's the point so i i'm fine with it i think that's kind of a weird complaint yeah i also think it's a weird complaint because in like in dark souls 
Uh, take Anne Orlando, for example. Anne Orlando is empty. There's not a lot of stuff in there to, you know, interact with or even roll through and destroy. Like, that kind of set dressing's not there. But Anne Orlando's been abandoned for a long, long time. Um, same with, like, the a lot of the levels in Dark Souls. They're abandoned places that you're exploring and doing some kind of, like, archaeology on. Yarnum's not an abandoned city in Bloodborne. Yarnum has people that are still living there, which is not normal for from software games, right? So it makes sense to me that these houses have stuff in them because people still live there. Even as you're experiencing the events of the game, you're going in people's houses. People live there. They might they might have lost their damn mind and you have to kill them because they shoot machine guns at you, but like <laughs> there are still people living there. So it makes sense to me that there are tables and chairs and maybe not like giant stacks of books. That's not normal, but or like coffins sure. lining the street. It makes sense to me that there would be chained coffins lining the street because a bunch of people are dying on this night and they're people are locking up their dead because they're afraid they're going to, you know, turn werewolf or something like that. All that stuff works for the atmosphere of Bloodborne. Uh, for me personally, yeah. it's a, it's a really common complaint. Like you would be surprised how, ma how many people say like, why is there so much clutter? I don't like the clutter. And I'm like, well, this is a city that people live in, like that are still alive. Of course there's, if you looked at my house, there's fucking things everywhere. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's just something I don't quite get. Yeah. It goes back to me just talking about the atmosphere where, and like in a way it bothers me, but it feels like you are being dropped into a world that is already going through something. It is already trying to deal with its dead and dying. And it's not, it has not quite figured out what to do with those coffins yet. And so they are just, they are just there for now. Right. And yeah, like story wise, again, that might be something. It bothers the hell out of me because I'm like, well, why are there all these coffins here? Like, obviously something is happening. Yeah. Um, and so I think just giving me. you that thought is enough. Just making you say, like, why are there 4,000 coffins on the streets of Yarnum? That's enough for yeah, me. It, yeah, it bothers me in a different way. I'm not, like, complaining that they're there in the first place. I just want to know why. Yeah, that's, <laughs> really, that's, that's strange. That is not the type of criticism I'm here for. Um. <laughs> well, speaking of coffins, because this is... I'm going to segue into enemy design as far like still part of still in the graphics here. Going to go mm -hmm. into enemy design because some of those caskets come alive and they attack you. That is just one of the many very weird enemies uh, that you will encounter. Um, mm -hmm. There's some other ones that stick out to me that are uh, especially uh, you see them in the DLC, I believe. But uh, you, I think you first run into them in Canehurst Castle are these giant blood-sucking mosquitoes right. with just, like, yeah. the fat, like, blood sack on them. God. And then yeah. there's these, uh, <laughs> I don't know what they're called. There's, like, the bag boys that take you to Yargle. Mm -hmm. And then the winter lanterns, which are absolutely horrific. Because yeah. most of the time you encounter them in, like, very, very dark areas. And before you see them, you can hear them singing. And then once you see them, you're like, oh, my God, what is happening? Like, you're also dying. Yeah. But then you also look at them and you're just like, Jesus fucking Christ, what is this thing? It's it's a really interesting thing. Like when you see when your character sees a winter lantern or they'll start to build up this thing called frenzy that 
instantly either kills you or takes you down to real low health when that bar fills up. And so the first time you encounter that, you are thinking like, why is my frenzy meter going up so high? And then if you get a close look at the winter lantern or look at a picture on the wiki, you're like, oh, that's why that's a really horrible design. Like I would lose my fucking mind if I saw one of those things too. Are there any enemies, you know, that stick out to you besides the winter lanterns? Yeah. Um, uh, the mind flares. So like as you start going through the game, you start out fighting beast things, you know, in various forms. And then things start to get more tentacles and stuff, basically, as we transition to a Lovecraft type thing. So the mind flares are a really memorable one, partly because of their design, how they take this appendage and just shove it through the top of your head and suck out your... um your insight, I think it is that they take. Oh, okay, those guys. I was gonna say you're gonna have to remind me, dude. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I didn't... Okay. Those uh, those things are really, really messed up. Um, and uh, I just had one and I forgot. Uh, we talked about the sharks. Those uh, those sharks are really something. <laughs> and the the dudes in the research hall that have those like they they look like they have bags of liquid on their head, but it's really just like that is their head now like their head has transformed into this mushy thing inside the bag uh, in the research hall in the dlc those things are cool uh cool in like the way that like i need to kill it oh, i can't remember them it they're they're the the normal enemies in the research hall and they have these big like burlap sacks for heads and then later you meet a couple that are just the sack real I'm, messed I'm up look it up because i really can't Keep going. Keep yeah. going. I'm listening. Are, are there, what about bosses? I mean, this this can be all encompassing oh, yeah, as far as the, enemy design goes. The enemy designs for the bosses, yeah. Um, well, Ludwig is like a really messed up design when you first see him uh, as like this demented horse with more legs than a horse should have. And then in his second phase, he kind of regains a little bit of humanity, but he's still this horse person monstrosity swinging around this giant sword ludwig's a big like very cool design if you just like look at a picture it's you're like the mind that this came out of that is i want to meet this person who was like this these are the ideas rolling <laughs> around in my head you know uh, same with the winter lanterns those are the those are the classic one right yeah i, I just looked up the enemies in the research hall and yeah they're disgusting they're yeah they're like that's not a normal bag on their head yeah no you you (laughs) do not want to open that bag and see what's inside absolutely not anything else on graphics in general um my cat has a lot to say about the graphics apparently yeah you um (laughs) uh, the just like uh, there there are like almost no enemies in the game that are just like a dude like in central yarnum there's a bunch of just dudes with axes and pitchforks and torches and stuff like that and as you progress through the game there are a lot of you get introduced to like even the regular humanoid enemies are not just dudes anymore there's always something wrong with them uh and that's really cool oh the other thing is the uh fuck the amygdalas that are everywhere uh once you get enough insight you find out that the city of yarnum is just covered with these eldritch 
monsters. They're not spiders. They look like spiders, but they're definitely not they're like spiders. Stick bugs or, or something. Yeah, that's a good comparison. Or like giant like daddy long legs almost. And they're real gross. And like that one boss fight against one of them is really, uh, really cool. And like there's a part in that boss fight when it like rips its own arm off and starts swinging its own arm at you. That's always yeah. a, a sign yeah. that shit's gotten real in a boss fight. Yeah, the amygdalas are a cool design and that's a great reveal after you've been playing the game for a while and like you think you know what's going on and then you get enough insight and suddenly you can see these things that have been there the whole time. It's a very good, uh, very cool like Lovecraftian idea. So moving on to the music here, I don't have a lot to say about the music. You know, I at this being a PS4 game, it's a more modern game, so I do want to dip into the sound design uh, briefly as well. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts on the soundtrack overall? The soundtrack is... I don't know, man. A lot of the Souls soundtracks kind of run together in my head because a lot of the boss tracks do sound similar. You know, a lot of choirs... Um, a lot of, you know, strings. Bloodborne does kind of lean more into like what you might think of as like a classic horror soundtrack, the way they use sure. strings and stuff like that. There are a couple really standout tracks, though, in Bloodborne, I think. I really like the Hunter's Dream uh, theme song. And another, like, in case someone's listening and like hasn't played uh, there is no music when you're going through the levels. That's a, a From Software standard uh, through Dark Souls and Bloodborne. So you have these this very lonely feeling because you have no music. And then the boss tracks are this big contrast to that. So I really like the um, Hunter's Dream song. Ludwig's song is the one that everyone always points out as being a standout because it is really fucking great especially as it transitions into phase two of that fight. But a lot of the, a lot of the tracks are like these big bombastic choirs and like really intense music meant to get your adrenaline going during these boss fights. So a lot of the boss tracks do kind of run together in my head. Yeah. The, the one memorable besides the hunter's dream, which you brought up the other area that I thought had really good music and it's, I think a lot of it struck me because I had no idea what was going on because I did get bagged up by one of the bag boys and mm-hmm. they took me to Yargle. So my head was kind of spinning because I'm like, what the fuck is happening right now? Um, but then also the the music that plays in that area is, it, it stood out to me. And besides for the Hunter's Dream, those were really like the other two. Those were the only two, I should say, that... Uh, really kind of had any type of effect on me. Um, but otherwise it very much is what you said. It was just very, this, the music isn't bad, you know, no, no, no. it's just this yeah. very well orchestrated, uh, very heavy violins and strings and stuff like that. And choirs and it, it works. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah. I was just going to say like, I think, I think it sounds great. 
but there's just not a whole lot that's super, super memorable uh, for me personally in this game in the way that, you know, a lot of games have extremely memorable soundtracks. And that's one thing, like for as much as I love From Software, I wouldn't say a lot of the tracks are super memorable. They're there for, they do a great job of building this kind of atmosphere or uh, intense feeling during boss fights. But I don't remember what most of the tracks sound like, uh, except for a few exceptions. Like I said, Ludwig's is a huge exception to that. Father Gascoigne's is one that I think is really good too. But yeah, a lot of them sound similar. See, that's wild because I had no idea that the bosses even had themes. I was about to call you a liar because I <laughs> had no idea. Like I, they all sound so similar to me. But um, most of them do. Yeah, I don't. There's a couple that like Witches of Hemwick has a song that's not, you know, big choirs and stuff like that. But most of them do sound pretty similar to me and my untrained ear. Yeah, same. I'm I'm just a big dummy when it comes to music most of the time. I just <laughs> know what I like, you know. Yeah. And what I like, what I really like in this game is the sound design. Mm-hmm. The way that the sound design works where you hear things happening in the background, especially when you're in Yarnum, you hear that this is a city that's not okay you hear people like screaming in the background or you hear the enemies talking the enemies say stuff like the regular dudes on the street they will kind of be talking about the curse you'll hear them muttering to themselves and you just all your fault yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) you you hear a lot of just stuff that makes you know that like this place is not okay and then just like the sound design in combat, your weapons hit with this like wet visceral sound. Yeah. That yeah. Is, like even if you're not using one of the saw weapons. Um, Everything sounds disgusting, like in the best possible way. Yeah, I was way. just going to say it's gross, dude. Like when you attack something, it's this gross. It sounds like what I imagine fucking ripping into flesh with a saw would yes. sound like. Yeah. It's gross. And then a lot of the bosses have very good sound design, like these primal screams. And it's one of the reason I love Orphan of Cost so much because it's, it is a primal is the word I would use to describe the sound design of Orphan of Cost. He is shrieking in anger for most, all of that fight. And like most of the bosses, especially the big beast ones, have like really good sound design that makes them like, scary and intimidating and Mm. stuff like that and then when you're exploring the levels when you're not fighting the thing i always love about souls games is they give you that lonely feeling because there's no music and it's just the sound of your footsteps and then any environmental sounds that's going on it's always something i appreciate about these games yeah going back to just how gross this game can sound at at times (laughs) fighting vicar amelia uh, is a very good example of how gross this game sounds because mm-hmm. in that cutscene when she's transforming, uh, you can just hear her like bones cracking and separating as she's transforming. And then there's uh-huh. the huge uh, blood splatter on the altar that just sounds like somebody just took a gallon of blood and just slapped it on some marble in the in the sound studio mm-hmm. for some foley work <laughs> or whatever. It is phenomenal.
again disgusting in the best way possible it's it's very good yeah there's another one like there's a couple well there's basic enemies in yarnum when you kill them they'll do this like gurgling scream as they die that's really really good and oh what's the other sound design thing you just made me think of there's uh it, maybe it'll come back to me well you're talking about the winter lanterns briefly and how they before they aggro you they are just simply wandering around aimlessly singing that song's creepy as fuck too This is, I mean, I play video games with headphones all the time, and this is definitely one of those games you might want to throw on some headphones for just to get like the best experience possible. Absolutely, because you'll hear things like dripping in the background and stuff, stuff that might not come through your TV speakers. This isn't quite like Returnal 3D audio, but you you do get a a much more full picture in Bloodborne uh, if you listen with, if you play with headphones. Oh, the other thing, uh, as far as sound design, uh, this is probably the creepiest from software has been with NPC voice acting in this game. Uh, there are so many fucking weird NPCs and they, I know they, they tell all the NPCs. I'm sure they do like say your lines with a weird voice and then do the <laughs> creepiest laugh you can at the end. Uh, you know, even the, even the nice ones, the, the dude that wants you to, bring people to uh the chapel he, he he'll say like tell them to come to Erden chapel it's a safe place and then uh, <laughs> he'll, this fucking weird laugh and the npcs in uh in bloodborne their voice acting is very very good see i i didn't think the voice acting was anything very notable it it's fine i i don't think it was great it does what it needs to do you know, again, like I feel like as far as the atmosphere that they're going for. Yeah, good in that way, for sure. They're, this they're this accent- isn't like this isn't like emotional voice acting performances, right. but it's very good at like the atmosphere they're trying to set. Yeah, it's like, yeah, I'm going through this again, ye old foggy London town and <laughs> these British accents sound like they are supposed to or English accents or whatever. Like it obviously like this game doesn't have a stacked lineup of voice actors like the last of us or something like that um right i don't know i i thought it was fine it's not bad um again it's not like these npcs have like 30 lines of dialogue or anything like that either it's yeah i don't know i thought it was fine yeah it's pretty good over i mean overall just sound design is like a something that really shines in this game and and man i mean if you again if you're listening to this and you haven't played Go find a Let's Play and just listen to the way the weapons sound when they hit an enemy. That is great. Dave, oh my god. Dude, what is that? What is that? 
<laughs> oh my god, it's a dude, it's a random encounter. Oh shit, I wasn't prepared for a random encounter. No, dude, yeah, well, you know what? It's coming whether you want it. You stepped on the wrong tile on the world map, man. <laughs> I here, was gonna say, here I we walked are. too many tiles. Yes. So this is this is the part of the show where I'm going to use a very scientific, though random, method of asking you a question mm -hmm. ranging from the mundane to the absolutely unnecessary like i probably shouldn't be asking you this so okay. we're just gonna see and maybe maybe i'll answer the question this is more about you not me you're, you're the guest everybody knows what i fucking think so yeah so i'm going to uh spin this very scientific wheel that i have and it's going to determine what question i ask you okay interesting all right <laughs> <laughs> dave which celebrity do you think plays video games but won't admit to it Shit, it's a really hard question. Um, Paris Hilton, Bloodborne mostly. <laughs> <laughs> Sekiro, uh, Ninja Gaiden Black. I could see Paris Hilton sitting there, you know, <laughs> finding the different armor and clothes and stuff you can dress up with Bloodborne and just doing that for like an hour That's, i'm gonna say she gets almost all of her inspiration from from software games so yeah paris hilton so when do you think in the hilton hotels do you think the bible in every room will be replaced with a copy of bloodborne yeah it's it's replaced with uh the design doc for bloodborne basically they like print it out and hand bind it and put it in all of the nightstands. So I think that's already happened. Like, I, I think it's, maybe it still looks like a Bible, but if you flip a few pages, then the real shit starts. There's just like, uh, uh, what do they call them? Like the early designs of like bosses and enemies and stuff like that. Yeah, the concept art. The concept that's... art, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like Arnold Schwarzenegger probably plays a ton of video games nowadays. Like, what else does he have to do? Just like lift weights and write things on facebook i don't know if he's still writing things on facebook like you think arnold schwarzenegger still works out like that i think so yeah i think he still works out i think he's i think he's one of those people that like has to it's it's like been part of his life yeah, for but so like, long to what degree do you think do you think he's still like going like every single day uh you know i would bet that he still works out and like does like a proper like strongman workout like four days a week, maybe not to the same intensity because he's he's pretty old now. But like, right, I would right. bet he still works out. I used to follow The Rock on Instagram, and that I don't know how that dude gets time to even make seventeen movies in a year because mm -hmm. he's always at the gym and he's always talking about how he's at the gym for like eight hours a day or something like that. I'm like. Man, yeah, what kind of I, life do you live? <laughs> I was, yeah, I, I think about this with a lot of like celebrities that I think are really, really busy. Like The Rock is probably one of those where like when when he's done working out, when he's done doing his shoots for the day, when he's done promoting his tequila, when he's done with all of that, how much free time does he actually have left? Unless the only thing he wants to do in his free time is work out, in which case... Cool. Sure. I get it. But like, I was thinking about this too, because my wife really likes BTS. And 
those dudes are fucking everywhere. They're on, they have like, they have like three TV shows. They're doing concerts. They're doing music videos. They're on tour. They, it seems like people like that have no free time whatsoever. And so I'm always wondering, like, does the rock feel like he's too busy or is he happy with his daily life? Like, is he like, man, I really want to sit on the couch and fucking play Bloodborne or is that just not the way he's wired at all? Like he's the type of person that can't just sit on the couch. Do you think he played Rampage before he made the movie? Do you think he played Rampage at all? I would think that like maybe as a kid or like in high school or something, I'm sure he came across an arcade machine with Rampage or something like that. Oh, so you think he played it like 30, 40 years ago? I mean, I I played Rampage on an arcade machine and I wasn't playing games 30 years ago. So yeah. I think that's possible for sure. Um, He's supposed to be in a new video game movie, apparently. That's the rumor. Oh, did you not hear what that is? The announcement? Oh, was it announced? Yeah. it's. I mean, this uh, is going to be old news by the time this episode airs anyway, but... Yeah, it's yeah, Call of it? Duty. Is it Call of Duty for real? Oh my That's what God. I saw. Fucking like, A. It makes everybody sense. Who, yeah, of course it makes. It's The Rock. Like, everyone who saw that and was like, it was like, oh, they're going to make a God of War movie starring The Rock. And then as soon as they said it was Call of Duty, I was like, yeah, that's the most predictable shit ever. I mean, he already played that role in Doom. <laughs> it's the same movie. It, it's going to be this. It, the Call of Duty movie is going to be the same as every other war movie starring like you know it's it's going to be the same as every other john cena movie about you know yeah yeah. a war hero it's just going to be called call of duty and there's going to be a line in there where they say you know why are you doing what you're doing chief i have to honor turn to the camera the call of duty (laughs) there's gonna be a line like that (laughs) or it's like or like some sergeant talking to a cadet and you'd be like, you have to get out there. It's your call of duty. Yeah. <laughs> or some shit. Yeah. Private, where are you going? Sorry. Sorry, Sarge. Duty calls. <laughs> yeah. They're going to do As something. As he's running real. to the bathroom. They're going to do something real cute. That entire Resident Evil movie that just came out, they're doing a lot of real cute stuff in that movie. Hey, you snooze, you lose. What? It's Jill Sandwich now. Well, that's that's Resident Evil. Resident Evil's full of real cute shit like that, isn't it? Bad, uh, like, <laughs> I mean, I listened early, to you talk the, about Resident Evil Six. The early <laughs> games, the early games, yes. That movie did not need to be made ever. So, do you think The Rock played Doom before he did Doom? It's possible. Yeah, that's got to be a rock possible. game. I don't. know. I feel like a lot of people at least had some exposure to doom. Even if you like, I didn't play it, but I, I knew what doom was. I didn't have a computer that I didn't play games on the computer back then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I feel like doom is more synonymous than like, I've, it's more well-known than rampage. At least, you know, I can yeah. see him playing doom over rampage anytime rampage was just, he needed a new garage and he was like, Hey, I'll, I'll take this. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Which is, uh, that must, that must be, it must be nice. Like, you're like, you know what? I could use another addition on the house. I could use a sixth guest house, you know, for like when I have six families of friends coming to visit me. Uh, yeah, I will do, uh, let's make a fucking golden axe movie 
I'll do that. <laughs> it's gonna it's gonna take me two weeks to film it, <laughs> and then uh, then yeah, I will take my several million dollars. He's he has a clone. If he's if there's a celebrity out there with a clone, he's the one because there's just no way this man has time to do yeah. everything that he does. Dude is busy. Yeah. Yes. So Paris Hilton. Paris Hilton plays video games Paris even Hilton, though we've been talking sure. about The Rock. <laughs> Specifically, Paris Hilton doesn't like I'm not saying like Paris Hilton plays Animal Crossing. I'm saying uh Paris Hilton, after a long day of being a Instagram influencer or whatever, uh likes to wind down with yeah, Bloodborne. You could um, be very much uh co co oping Elden Ring with her as we speak. I could be. She she could have been like, you know, Boner Fang 69 that I helped beat a boss yesterday. That <laughs> could have been Paris Hilton. Who knows? <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, that, that has been your random encounter. You, you made it. You leveled okay, up. Okay, good. finally here uh after three and a half hours it is time to sum up our thoughts and find out if we would recommend bloodborne in 2022 mm-hmm. usually uh i would let you start but i think i would rather end this episode on a more positive note so i'll go first and make it as painless okay. as possible so as i talked about like at the top of the show uh i was extremely excited to come back to this like i really really wanted to play bloodborne again and as i was playing it uh there's there's so much in bloodborne that feels like it was made specifically for me uh like the dark eldritch terror around you know every fucking corner the gothic architecture um a world literally enveloped in blood uh the sound design is incredible uh, the setting, the creature design, but somehow playing Bloodborne, I just felt very bored. And knowing I felt this way only a couple hours in, I couldn't, I couldn't come into this episode without putting like a real concerted effort in, which is why I was like, I think I'll platinum this just to see everything that this game has. Um, we didn't even talk about the Chalice Dungeons. The fucking Chalice Dungeons, they suck. I'm They're glad we didn't awful. talk about them. They're the worst. And I thought, you know, doing that, maybe something would click. Maybe something would change my mind. And I didn't get to... We, there's a lot of my notes that I skipped. So there's a lot of stuff that I just uh, didn't talk about that I did enjoy. But uh, I did mention the DLC here and there. Um, the DLC was awesome. Again, I think it is better than the main game, personally. But even that just wasn't enough for me. And I kind of just left disappointed. And and to say that I platinumed it too, like just goes to show how dedicated I was to make sure I guess I knew what this game was because I never 100% a game ever. I mm-hmm. never do that. You can ask anybody. 
and I just even doing that, like I just didn't feel like the accomplishment that should come with something like that. In a lot of ways, I think it's appropriate that there is a PlayStation One remake of Bloodborne because I feel like Bloodborne very much plays like a game, a 3D game that came out in 1995. Like I played Dragon Valor uh, for the show last last month uh, when this episode airs. And I feel like that game controls a lot better. Uh, it came out in 1999 and controls a lot better than Bloodborne does. Uh, having played Dark Souls and Dark Souls 2 and then this, I don't understand why I guess the Soul series and Miyazaki get a pass for the gameplay that are in these games because if this was in any other game, people would call it clunky and dated. And to me, Bloodborne born feels clunky and dated there's just not enough of that progressive step forward that i guess i was expecting from 2008's demon souls it's kind of more or less the same again i, I talked about in the gameplay section i do think I'm, I'm sure i haven't played demon souls but uh dark souls is so much slower so i mean there is a little bit there but it's still kind of the same and <laughs> i'd hate to man i'm gonna get people are probably already turned this off uh the first second i said that i hated the gameplay but i would just argue i'm just gonna go out on the limb here and just say miyazaki is a one-trick pony and i would love to see him do something completely different at this point um and i know i haven't played sekiro i have been told that uh regarding my feelings on bloodborne that Sekiro would probably be more of a game up my alley. So anyway, I'm rambling now. Would I recommend Bloodborne? And I think I have to stick to my guns on this one. There are similar games that I didn't recommend for all of the reasons, for all the same reasons that I did not like Bloodborne. Uh, and those games were made in the 80s. This is a modern game, so I'm going to go with a light not recommend. I don't think Bloodborne does, aside from, again, the graphics, music, uh, sound design, all that other stuff, you can have that stuff all day. You can have all that stuff all day, but if the game isn't fun to play, and then without the story, without feeling the motivation at all, um, I don't think it does that stuff particularly well. And I'm, I'm sure somebody somewhere out there would probably agree with me, but I'm probably never going to hear about that, so... That is just that is just be light not recommend over here. Dave, I will turn it to you to basically bring it home and make everybody else happy. <laughs> <laughs> um I think that from software, while their combat systems, aside from Sekiro, are similar, very similar. And so if you called Miyazaki a one-trick pony, from that perspective, they are very, very similar. You're following the same basic combat rhythm in all of the games, but I find that combat rhythm to be the most engaging of any action game that I've ever played because you do have to be invested in every encounter. And even if it is to a point where, you know, I know I can just run up and stun lock this enemy to death and I don't really have to think about what this basic dude is going to do, you know that through lots of experience that taught you that. And so that kind of engagement is why I think that 
all of the FromSoft games are more engaging than your typical 3D action game. And Bloodborne in particular, I find to be very fun to play because it is more fast-paced. You can't turtle the way that I'm playing Elden Ring right now and I'm playing with a big shield. I turtle behind it when an enemy attacks because the game is hard and that's the way that I choose to survive it. And in Bloodborne, you can't do that. All of the things that they did to adapt to this more um, fast-paced, more dangerous uh, type of combat uh, where you can't block, all of those things make it more fun uh, to me. I have more fun playing Bloodborne than I do playing Dark Souls 1 as much as I love that game. That's why I think when you ask me my favorite game, Dark Souls 1 is a contender, Elden Ring may be a contender once I'm done with it, but Bloodborne is the winner right now because it's it's more fun to me uh, to be a lot more active and aggressive in the combat system. So that's kind of my final bit about the gameplay and why I find it to be so fun and engaging, coupled with, like I said at the beginning of the show, I think From Software does level design and exploration better than anybody else. Uh, I have not found games that are so fun and rewarding to explore since the first time I played Morrowind uh, back in the early 2000s. And Bethesda has lost some of that, I think, with finding things that feel the same. Of course, comparing Bloodborne and Dark Souls to open world games is a little bit unfair. So I'll stop making that comparison now. Although Elden Ring does have the best open world I've played in a long time. So FromSoft, they get it uh, as far as exploration goes. So couple that really fun gameplay with, in my opinion, the best developer for exploration. And like, I get if you are a person who's playing games because you want to be following a story and you want to be engaged in a story. And I do this too, because video games, if a video game has a great story, then I will emotionally connect with that story more than I would a great story in a movie. That's just the way that I kind of interact with these and why video games are my preferred uh, method of entertainment. If you need that story to lead you along, then you will be disappointed with any From Software game because that's not what they do. That's We talked about that earlier. That's the decision that they have made with how they're going to tell stories. So I am perfectly cool with going through these games and just vibing with things. And all the text that you get, the NPC conversations that you get is flavor more than story content for me because I don't dig through the story and make the connections by myself. That being said, the flavor and the atmosphere in Bloodborne is so fucking good, in my opinion, that it makes up for any lack of linear plot that you're following throughout the story. And that's not something that I would say about the Dark Souls games. I think the flavor in Bloodborne is much better than the flavor in the Dark Souls games for me personally, as someone who's not really paying attention to everything they give me. So I guess I will finish rambling now. I think the gameplay is really fun. I think the atmosphere is extremely good. The sound design is like amazing. This has some of the best level design and best exploration that gaming can offer, in my opinion. And I think that if you have a PlayStation 
PS4 or PS5, I think this is a game that you should try unless you're the type of person and you know yourself, if you're the type of person who will not be up for that, like learning the challenge of the game. If you're the type of person who's going to get frustrated and not have fun because something is challenging and expecting a lot out of you, then don't play Bloodborne because you're not going to like it. Um, and that's the same thing I say about the Dark Souls games. As much as I love them, if you're not up to meet the game on its terms, because this is not a game that's going to just let you do whatever you want, if you're not up for that, don't play Bloodborne. But if you are, I think this is basically some of the best gaming that gaming has to offer, I think. Yeah, and I've hammered this home before on plenty of other episodes, uh, particularly when I was talking about Returnal. It's not a valid criticism that if a game is hard, it also means that is that it is a bad game. Or that it's a good game. That like, as well. A game yes, being yeah. difficult does not mean that it's a good game. Because, yes, though there are those, uh, again, those from soft queens that are out there who very weird gatekeepy way are like, oh, this isn't a real video game if you're not having fun. <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah, like, all right, I if, guess. Yeah. And we we didn't we've kind of touched on that throughout the course of this. But like, I want to be very clear. I love the from soft games. But if you're the type of like basically get good person who like someone says the game someone says this encounter is hard and you're like well get good fucking do it you pussy then i i am not on your side i want to make that very clear like the gatekeepy types in fromsoft that say like never summon fight everything by yourself never summon help mm. because you're robbing yourself of this experience that's bullshit. You can fuck off with that. I summon a lot. You're also in these robbing games. yourself of the experience of playing the game as in, as intended. As it was designed. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> this isn't Leia. Like summoning help isn't some fucking like game shark cheat that we've come up with. This is right, a game exactly. mechanic yeah. they put in the game. <laughs> so like the the FromSoft gatekeepers are the fucking worst. And I say this as a giant fan of them and all of their games. They're the worst. Uh, so that's, that's going to be it. So I can't remember you said, wait, yeah, you, obviously you're recommending Bloodborne, right? Oh yeah. To a specific group of people who know that they're up for this kind of thing. I am recommending it. Yeah. All right. Just, just to be clear. All right, cool. All right. So yeah, that's, that's, I can't believe we got through it. Um, <laughs> it's honestly, uh, this has been a long time coming, man. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for sitting here chatting with me for nearly four hours about this game. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. I feel this like I had to return like, the favor, though, because I was on your show for quite quite a long time as well. So. Yeah, our our uh, our Earthbound episode was pretty long. You you get you talking about Earthbound and me talking about Bloodborne. We can go on forever. Yeah, it's it's like the flip flop like mirror image, almost. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, so speaking of your podcast and you've got two of them and you talked a little bit of a little bit about them up top. Why don't you remind everybody at this point uh, where they can find you? I will hand uh, Keith a link tree that has everything, but you can find Tales from the Backlog uh, on Instagram and Twitter. Instagram at Tales from the Backlog, Twitter at TFTBL pod. But again, link tree. Don't try to remember anything I'm telling you right now. Link tree, link tree. Um, it will be in the top description. Three yeah, a top three podcast is also on Instagram and Twitter. A top three podcast is also has a little bit of a Facebook presence, but I'm currently locked out of Facebook, so I have no control over that. 
not because I was like supporting terrorism or something. Someone, someone stole my Facebook password and I decided mm-hmm. to just lock the account. Yeah, you had nothing to do with the, the <laughs> election fraud with Russia and any, any of that stuff. Nothing. Yeah, nothing. okay. I'm going on record and saying my hands are clean. Yeah, a top three podcast and Tales from the Backlog are available on uh, any podcast app that you want to listen to shows on. I think I got it pretty well covered, but if there's something you're listening to podcasts on that you you can't find my shows and you want to listen, just send me a message on one of those social accounts and I'll figure it out. But for now, it should be pretty much everywhere. everywhere. They, they're incredibly, incredibly good podcasts. Um, I enjoy Thank you, dude. listening to all the stuff that you put out. And if you guys like hearing me talk about video games, you guys are going to love hearing Dave talk about video games and talk about his... Man, you guys talk about a lot of food on a top three podcast. So yeah, we uh, do. Yeah, you're gonna love hearing them talk about <laughs> fried foods and all that other stuff. So mm-hmm. as for me, um, you guys can, um, you know, you you know what it, you know what it is. Linktree, of course, same thing as Dave. Um, but also more importantly, uh, follow the show on Instagram. I, I can't uh, basically promote that enough. It's probably the one that I'm most active on. And that is the main quest on Instagram. You can find out the schedule for the show and uh, other little various things about typically it's retro games. I know it's kind of weird that I'm talking about modern games periodically, but um, I don't know. It's a little bit of both. As far as the schedule goes, um, well, this will be airing in May. I have no idea what's on the schedule. I'm playing Game Boy games. So there's going to be a Game Boy episode out. Um, that's <laughs> pretty much that's what that's all i know that the future holds at this point it's it's only march so again uh dave thanks so much for coming on dude yeah man i i really appreciate the chance to come on and talk about bloodborne more importantly just talk games with you dude always a good time so thanks thank you guys so much for listening i will talk to you guys later take care of yourselves
I, I am surprised my cat hasn't come in. Dude, the most embarrassing thing happened to me. So I was on another podcast <laughs> and my cat was like sleeping by my feet over here. And all of a sudden he just starts puking and the people heard it. <laughs> the people on the other end heard it. They're like, dude, is your cat puking? And I'm like, fucking yes. And then it just smelled really bad too. So it was like I had to take care of it. Um, yeah. It was so fucking embarrassing. <laughs> 